The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hey everybody, it's Nico. As you'll notice, we had some audio level issues while recording over Skype this week. And as editor, I tried my best to level, normalize, and amplify where possible to get the best sound possible. But there were places where the audio just dropped out completely or was too low to amplify without major distortion. So please bear with us and we'll have it fixed for next week. Thanks. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Weeks, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who would come chasing after me to San Francisco, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on Once Upon a Time with Dan and Andy, the following with Andy and Nico, Castle, Intelligence, Person of Interest, Supernatural, and the Psych Finale, and our sitcoms section, including How I Met Your Mother, New Girl, and Modern Family. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on The Walking Dead, Justified, and The Americans, and maybe even a few more things. But first, we have everyone's favorite section, News with Nico. Amy Acker to guest star on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Since Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has begun, a couple of things have been assumed. One, with Phil Coulson as the main character, we'd meet the cellist mentioned in The Avengers. And two, we'd see more familiar faces from previous Joss Whedon projects pop up. Now in the Two Birds, One Stone category comes the casting news that Amy Acker will play that aforementioned cellist in an upcoming episode of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV Guide has the news revealing Acker's character named Audrey will appear in at least one episode of the series. In the episode she first appears in, Audrey still believes Coulson is dead while he must guard her from afar after a superpowered threat from her past reemerges. Dan and Andy went into decent detail on this on the Hellcarrier podcast released on Saturday, so if you'd like more in-depth discussion, listen to that podcast's news section, or follow the link in the ACC feed to the news article. And all I'm going to say to that, I think this is going to be a short stint on this show, so she will maintain her role because of a character or person has returned. Yep. Can Community actually get six seasons and a movie? When Abed Nadir, played by Danny Pudi, did all he could to save the cape in season two of the Community, no one could have known that that one line he had, six seasons and a movie, would turn into a rallying cry for Community itself as the show moved forward. Yet here we are with Community against the odds in the home stretch of its fifth season, and fans are anxious to find out, will the show get that sixth season? And could a movie in some form actually be possible? Earlier this week, TV Guide reported that not only are insiders at Sony who produced the series and NBC optimistic about a season six, but that there has been some talk of a movie and even a possible director. That director is Justin Lin, who did the third through sixth Fast and the Furious movies and has directed several community episodes, including the first paintball episode in season one. TV Guide also notes that these days a, quote, movie could mean many different things, from a TV movie to something released via video on demand, such as the recent Veronica Mars film, which also had a small theatrical release. There are three more community episodes set to air this season, including an ambitious animated homage to G.I. Joe, which is still being worked on a week before it airs. At this point, it would be a huge disappointment if Community did not get renewed for season six, and maybe we will get that six seasons in a movie. After all, stranger things have happened. I see a sixth season happening because the other sitcoms that NBC tried this year did terrible. The movie... 
I'm going to say it's going to be an on-demand type of thing, if it happens. Well, I think it's going to be very much in the same Veronica Mars category, where you can go and buy it online. It may get a very small theatrical release, I maybe an, an art house release. Yeah. But I, I do see it as a, a very big possibility, because Community has a few million very dedicated fans. And if they could get $10 out of each of those people to get that follow-up movie, it makes all the sense in the world to do a VOD release. Absolutely. Right. And they, they produce it and, and make it for six, eight million dollars and they're guaranteed 10 to 30 million depending on all three million of us viewers that watch every week go and actually buy this online. You know, so I, I think they'll make their money back easy. So I think it's a pretty solid bet on the studio's part. Helix renewed for season two by Sci-Fi. Just ahead of Helix's season one finale on Friday night, Sci-Fi's executive vice president of original content, Bill McCaldrick, announced the series will return for a second season. It will have 13 episodes, just like season one, and production will begin later this year. They're planning to premiere season two in early 2015. Okay, that show took off pretty quick, so makes sense. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I haven't finished season one yet, so I'm hoping that possibly when I finished it to give it a season-long review. Okay. ABC cancels Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. Sorry, Alice, it's time to leave Wonderland. ABC ran a promo for the next episode, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, this week, and pointedly called the 13th episode the series finale. Not season finale, but series finale. The Once Upon a Time spinoff has been struggling with ratings, so it's not the most surprising news. And you might have noticed, Andy and I did not continue our reviews when the show returned from hiatus, and much of that is due to our feelings this show was not going to be renewed, and we did not feel the need to waste our time on a dying show. Looks like that was a solid decision. And really, even the even the network executives have said that they made a mistake with this show not doing what they initially had planned and had promised the production company, which was that it was going to be a replacement when once the main show went on hiatus during the winter break. Yeah, yeah, I just think it's going to save ABC some money for the long run. If they want to continue Once Upon a Time, yeah, do S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, a bunch of the questions that rose were, was, does this mean that all the spinoffs for Once Upon a Time are now canceled? Does that mean that nothing else is going to get a chance? And there weren't any really solid answers yet. So we'll see if any of the other proposed spinoffs just die on the vine now. Mind Games canceled by ABC. ABC announced this week that Celebrity Wife Swap is kicking off its third season on Tuesday, April 15th at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. What makes that announcement notable is that Celebrity Wife Swap's time slot is currently held by Mind Games, created by Kyle Killen and starring Christian Slater and Steve Zahn. Only five episodes have aired so far, which means that this announcement doubles as Mind Games cancellation. Considering the abysmal ratings Mind Games has struggled to improve on since it deba- debuted five weeks ago, this news comes as no surprise. However, it's yet another disappointment for Killen and Slater. Killen created two shows previously, Lone Star, cancelled by Fox after two episodes, and Awake, which survived only one 13-episode season at NBC. Both shows garnered huge critical praise, but failed to find a substantial audience. This is three for three for me enjoying Killen's show and the concepts behind them, and two for the last two for Slater. Slater has suffered his own streak of bad luck on his last three shows since 2008, breaking in The Forgotten and My Own Worst Enemy, all receiving cancellations. Since the cancellation has yet to be formally announced, there's no word yet on what will happen to the show's remaining episodes and if they will air at all. Encores of ABC's new series Resurrection will take Mind Games slot for the next two weeks on April 1 and 8 until Celebrity Wife Swap premieres on the 15th. 
okay, I was going to watch this show, but it conflicted with watching Person of Interest. Okay, so that's why I didn't check it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for the three of the five that I've watched so far. I thought it had a shot, but again, it conflicted with my schedule. I guess it paid for that a little bit. Yeah, I, I love Steve Zahn's performance in this. I thought he was excellent. Christian Slater was typical Christian Slater. So if you like Christian Slater, you'll like him here. So I, I felt like it was exactly what they probably told the network it was going to be. It just didn't find an audience. Yep. AMC renews Comic Book Men, announces new Kevin Smith projects. AMC is looking to expand their relationship with Kevin Smith in a big way. The cable network has announced that they are renewing Smith's reality series Comic Book Men, following the staff and customers of Smith's comic book store, Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash, for season four. In addition, AMC is looking to build upon Smith's unscripted success by developing Hollywood Babylon, Smith's live podcast, into a late-night talk show. If the project goes to series, it will be hosted by Smith and his co-host, Ralph Garman. AMC is also developing a Kevin Smith-produced docuseries with comic book men, regular, and super collector Robert Bruce. According to the network's press release, the show will follow Bruce and his fellow experts as they scour the country searching real estate sales, auction houses, and flea markets on a quest to find rare items that will feed the needs of his demanding clients and add to Bruce's own colossal collection. All good things for Kevin Smith and his crew. Can we make a Fat Man on Batman on a TV show? (laughs) That would be amazing. Oh, man. I love Fat Man on Batman. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Vikings renewed for season three. People just love Vikings. With six episodes yet to air this season, Vikings has already been renewed for season three. History announced that they've ordered 10 episodes matching the current season episode count. It's not hard to see why history is so quick to renew the historical drama series. Vikings is the number one cable show in its time slot, averaging 3.4 million viewers in its sophomore season. Vikings airs Thursday at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, with the season two finale scheduled for Thursday, May first. Yeah, people are really into the historical stuff right now. Really yep. take it off. So good to see it keep it going. So yeah, I like the first season. I have not watched any of the second yet, but my parents are devouring it. Felicia Day and Brian Singer get spooked on Hulu and YouTube. Brian Singer from X-Men Days of Future Past, through his production company, Bad Hat Harry, is teaming up with Felicia Day's Geek and Sundry to deliver a four-episode season of Spooked, a new supernatural comedy launched on Hulu and YouTube on April 16th at 10 a.m. Pacific. Spooked follows the Paranormal Investigation Team, PIT, as they investigate phenomenon at haunted locations across the country. It features the unpredictable, horrific, and often comedic world of PIT as they find themselves dealing with ghosts, aliens, and other unexplained happenings. In the press release for the show, Singer describes Spooked as an irreverent, character-driven series in the paranormal genre. Felicia adds that it's one of the most ambitious projects Geek and Sundry has tackled. This should be interesting, and I can't wait to check it out. Especially after how awesome she's been on Supernatural. I think this is a cool idea for Felicia Day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she and started the, in it, right? No, no. She's oh, just okay. producing it. Okay. I think, I, you know she's going to pop up somewhere. Yeah. In, but no, she's she's producing and I think directing along with Singer. I think Singer is, is money only in this, but he could also be directing one of the four episodes. Yeah, it doesn't I, take a lot of time. Right. I, I would be surprised if, if he's not. Uh, but she's, I think, point man on this and he's in collaboration with her, but I, I can't, I can't be 100% positive because I've only, I read the article like a week ago and I'm not remembering all the details. 
Judd Apatow updates on that new Pee Wee Herman movie. A new Pee Wee Herman movie has been a long gestating project for actor Paul Rubens. Knocked up director Judd Apatow has been linked to the film as a producer, and now he says the film is pretty close to happening. During an appearance at Loyola Marymount University, Apatow said that he is, quote, close to getting that going with regards to his Pee Wee film. Apatow elaborated on the project saying, we've kicked around a couple titles. Pee Wee takes a holiday. That was one of them. But we got a great script that he wrote with a friend of mine, Paul Ruse, and I think we're probably going to get to do that soon. I think it would be great if Judd also directed this film and really gave it the Apatow touch. Could be really interesting. The only thing is Pee Wee Herman took a little old. That's the only thing I gotta say about it. Yeah, but if they if they if they age Pee- the that. character as well and, and yeah. like have it be many years since Pee Wee's big adventure, then it makes all the sense in the world. Pee Wee gets old. That should be the title. <laughs> Pee Wee gets old, right. Well there's Jay and Silent Bob get old for right. Kevin Smith, so why not Pee Wee gets old? Yes. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Alright, let's have Andy join the party with us for this week's What's Upon a Time so good title, The Tower. While Emma, David, Regina, and Hook continue their search for the Wicked Witch, uh, she, in turn, is planning a dark surprise for David, and Selena's prisoner is powerless under her watch as she plots her next course of action against uh, the townspeople. Meanwhile, in the fairyland that was in the previous year, Prince Charming stumbles upon Rapunzel, who is trapped inside a tower and must help her confront her fear in order to, in order for her to be free. Now, I'm going to say what I said on my re- uh, on my review on TVOverMind.com, that Rapunzel was never a character that I really cared for a lot growing up i her story was not that interesting to be honest and uh it's i i really didn't care that much about her uh, when i was growing up um i like that they use her as a one shot i don't think she's gonna come back to be honest and um i think this was enough this was good is like yeah we don't need her to be honest yeah there was really no point to do her than just to say hey guess what we did rapunzel on once upon a time i did like how david kind of acted as a father figure to her to maintain that concept while Emma wasn't around. But I only think this needed to work for a one-time episode deal. Um, I was a little nervous that it was going to turn into, you know, David Bede. I wasn't sure how they were going to do the Rapunzel thing. Like, I was like, I hope this isn't, like, another princess that's attracted to him or something. I'm glad that they left it to the father-daughter thing. So that was good how they did it. But I think they should leave it alone from here. Yeah, it, this was... Here's the thing. I think that sometimes we don't get to see enough of Charming. And I think that he's only is used as muscle right. t- sometimes. I think this time it was good that we got to get, go into his mind. We got to learn that he's, he's afraid he's not going to be a good father. And, um, you know, that makes me sad. Yeah. And, um, but I get where it's coming from as well. Exactly, and it's like like I said, it, it does make me emotional seeing that. And um, I will say this: this is not one of my favorite episodes. I think this is actually a, a bit of a, a step down after yeah. after the past couple of weeks of um, the episode that we've seen so far. But it's by no means a horrible episode. It was just not as good as the previous ones that we've seen. But at the same time, it wasn't awful either. I felt like it was more of like a transition episode. Yeah. Figure that's to the next big point of the story. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is figuring out, I guess, Mr. Gold's alive. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah, because next week seems like a big episode based on the previous. Yeah, and uh, let's talk about this whole representation of fear. They they have to face their own fear, in, and but they're in the, 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 um, the twist here is that the fear shows up in the form of themselves. Um, So we see Charming fighting himself, basically. Which was a very cool fight. Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. And I thought Josh Dallas did a good job of playing both sides of the coin. Yeah, I. You know what I always think about what I what I was thinking about in that scene was what if that's his evil twin again? I thought that too when I first saw him. But then he did the voice. And I'm like, oh, he's bad. Yeah. He, that's that's Batman. Right. Prince Batman. I really did. I thought the brother had survived somehow. That would be crazy. Or more like he he had been brought back. Right. But um, no, but I I enjoyed that aspect. And um, in the meantime, we see we see Selena. What a creeper! A good creeper. She's she's good. Yes, performance wise, yes. Yeah, she's a she's a she's a good she's a good actress. I think she's doing a great job. And I yeah. I'm intrigued to see what she's gonna do next. I she's gonna get that baby. That's it's, it's creepy. I just see this scene of her just like walking off with the baby. Could still be like, where's my baby? Could it just be freaky? It's all get out. Yeah. And, but it seems that Rumble is not her dad, thankfully. That's a good thing. Because we don't need everybody to be related to everybody, for the love of God. Right. Well, and I'm glad that it wasn't Rumpelstiltskin that brought himself back from the dead either. Yeah, it's a, that's a good point. It's a good point. Um, again, I don't know how she got the dagger, but okay. She bought it from eBay. Right. But um, I'm still not a big fan of Hook and Emma. I, yeah, leave that alone. Yeah, people give me so much bleep when, whenever I talk about my disinterest for that relationship. Yeah. Uh, I think that, I don't know. Why are they so against developing Emma's relationship with Neil? Well, right now he's Why does gone. Why does he have to be gone or missing all the time? I don't know. It's a good question. Do you think he is a monkey? Uh, no, I think he's a human being. So he didn't get turned into a monkey? I don't know. Because they brought that up in the episode. I just, they they, they discussed the possibility. Yeah. But I don't think he is one. Good. I don't want him to be. I think that's silly. I I don't have much to say about this episode, to be honest. I was a little bit bored, to be honest. And yeah, I was a, yeah. I was a bit nicer in my review on TV, TV Remind. But after seeing this episode again after that, was I was just like, I'm I'm really not that. Oh, you actually watched it twice. I'm sorry. No, I actually watched it three times. Go. Oh, really but sorry. it was that I was bored, so I was I thinking like maybe if I okay. watch it a third time, I will appreciate it more. But I I didn't really. But um, hey, it's still yeah, we we are still having an amazing season. I think that yeah. it's okay to have a misstep or two. But um, I didn't realize it is a misstep. I want to say this. Was, no, no, misstep. It was a it was a it was a it was a drop. It was a drop to be honest. Right, and, and I really think it was just okay. We need to establish things now because we were all over the place before. You know, we we were in Manhattan. Now let's establish the story. Exactly. Got one last quick thing. I thought Regina and Henry's scene yeah. was very good, though. Hey, I think Lana Perilla has just knocked it out of the park every episode for the, since they came back. Yes. All right. So now that we've got that out of the way, we're going to keep Andy around. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the following this week in the episode Teacher's Pet. Joe uses his acolyte to launch a wave of, ter- of terror to announce his return. Meanwhile, Mike beats an old friend while Ryan and Max uses, uses struts to try and make contact with Joe. This week's episode sends the rapidly evolving plot flying forward, while also giving us the long-awaited origin story of Joe Carroll, which I loved. As can be expected with plot-twisting thriller series like the following, the last few episodes will be immensely enjoyable, as were the ones comprising the back end of season one. I may have found the front end of the following season two to be lackluster, or more, at least somewhat convoluted, but I'm really excited for the final five episodes to see exactly where Joe takes 
takes this new Crimson Cult. Andy, I loved the introduction of Joe Carroll's origin story this week, even if it was a little underdeveloped, and I wish they had portrayed more of his time as a student under the guidance of his doctor mentor. Did you enjoy Joe's origin story, and do you think, like I do, that they should have shown more? Will we get any more of Joe's origin story in future episodes? I don't know if we will get more of it, but I will just say that the, the actor they got to play young Joe, the resemblance, the voice. Yeah, I agree. I thought he did an excellent job. And like there, there's the last shot they showed of him, and um, in his in, in the flashbacks, the final line he says just sounded sound exactly like James Purifoy. Do you think they were doing any voiceover stuff, or do you think it was no, actually... no, no, no? no I, okay. I think that no, it's not like with um, it's not like with with Arrow and Harley Quinn recently, which was awesome, but still, uh, I I think that was his, the actor's real voice. I don't think James Purifoy had to go in and make a younger version of himself. Okay. But I liked it. I liked a lot. Do you think they should have given us more? Or was it just about enough? You know, I have never really been the one that thinks a lot about his origin story, to be honest. I okay. Because uh, because of everything that's going on right now. But I, I, I was fine with it. Okay, okay. I would have liked a little bit more. But then again, I love the flashbacks and I love origin stories. So well, I'm I do, always going to think too. that. But yeah, with this I'm character, always going to think like, they need... Yeah, it's just, with this character, it's just, it's just like, I don't, I don't necessarily think immediately about his origin story. It's not like with a character like Spider-Man, or he's not like Batman or Superman or whatever you that you want to find out his origin. He's not like Lex Luthor. Like, he's just a character that you see. He's a, he's a great villain. Like He's one of the best villains on TV right now. It's just that my, his his background has never crossed my mind. But like, hey, okay. if they want to show us that, I, I don't mind. If, if, if Even if it had been more flashbacks in this episode, I'd be Fine, it's cool. I, I I enjoyed it for what it was. Okay. Now, Claire's survival is, in my opinion, one of the best twists this show has ever done. I don't think Andy feels the exact oh, same way, but we'll talk about that. I love that Natalie Z is back on the show, but it does pose a question for me. Joe ordered the hit on Claire last year, so he's clearly given up on her. However, why didn't he try to use Jenna while he, she was still alive to track down Joey? Joe had a near singular obsession session with getting his son back in season one but he hasn't even mentioned him this season i'm just wondering if joe figures joey is beyond his reach even with jenna's help but i digress one can assume that claire being alive will give ryan and the fbi a little bit of an upper hand in finally defeating joe once of course ryan actually learns of claire's existence certainly even if joe and emma are vanquished there's still lily and her bloodthirsty family who will return for luke the writers are certainly not short on options that's for sure Andy, why do you think that Joe has not once mentioned or sought after Joey in this season? Also, do you think Joe and Emma could be defeated as early as this season and then Lily and her crew will become the new big bad for next season and maybe beyond? Or do you think that Lily's crew will be vanquished this season and Joe and Emma will survive for another season as the big bad? Emma and Joe are definitely safe next season. I think they're so established that there's no... That, you, know, you can't kill them off right now. Okay. Okay. Now, and I, I, I want to, you know, clear my, clear myself up here. I have nothing against Natalie. See, I think she's a great actress. She is beautiful and everything. Here's the thing. Joey, Ryan, like it's just gonna be like that again. Like if you feel that she, I felt his her story was done, but I want to see where they go with it. I, I I will say that as a guy who has black hair himself, she does not look good in it. I'm sorry, she it makes her face look weird. It, it makes her body look smaller and her head. 
like enormous. Uh, sorry, Natalie, but that's the truth. I don't know why it, Joe, Joe doesn't care so much about Joe anymore. Maybe it's because he has Manny now, and he was just be like, "Oh, I have Manny to play with." Um, not not playing as in play with, but playing as in, "Oh, I have a daughter now" or something. Okay, so you think that it might be a combination of he just can't knows he can't get him and doesn't want to waste the efforts, and he has a supplemental child in the Mandy character. Yeah, who's get? Ooh, she's getting sassy and evil <laughs> and like ooh, like when she was talking to emma like you go girl she's hey bleep is about to go down i really enjoyed this season and the introduction of the crimson cult alkalites that started spreading joe's new message of no redemption without blood however for a minute there it had me worried that the inclusion of emily kinney from the walking dead meant that her fate on that show was not looking good also the prospect of another actor from a better show like natalie z from justified making the jump to the following made me a little bit sad don't get me wrong i enjoyed enjoy the following i enjoy the crap out of this show but it's not nearly as good as either justified or the walking dead not critically or just in in just blowing my mind but thankfully though the following introduced emily kinney's character as lance's girlfriend and later killed her off just like that no harm no foul back to the status quo although i did love the way she died getting killed by one of her fellow psychopaths to prevent her from giving up the location of joe's new compound Andy, what did you think of the new Acolytes and their No Redemption Without Blood campaign? Are you as happy as I am that Joe has killers going out into the world to wreak havoc, and does it remind you of season one and what got us invested in the show in the first place, all those Joe Carroll followers committing grisly murders? Yeah, and it's like, I, 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 have, I haven't been here for the past two weeks, but I remember the episode before I, le- I disappeared for a while. I, we were talking about the fact, what, well, what if Joe just go, keeps going from one cult to another and makes them into his cult and just spread more murders all over the place. Mm-hmm. So like, it looks like it's coming to fruition here, and I enjoyed it too. And uh, look, I don't watch Justify or Walking Dead, so I'm Look, but I'm sure there's, I'm sure there, there has to be a plan uh, of them being able to do those actors doing be, being able to do both shows and yeah. so on uh, without having to necessarily die or so. And hey, if they if they're more on the following, it doesn't mean that they, they will, their characters will die on their respective shows. They may be like, oh, I'm just gonna take a road trip. So well, like, it's, see, it, see, you, see you later. It's kind of funny because on The Walking Dead, the last time we saw her character, she was kidnapped. So well, <laughs> well, well, there, like, well, there you go. I was like, is she gonna die? Does that mean they're gonna kill her? What's well, gonna well, they, they leave her fate open by having her kidnapped. Exactly. and But that was why when I first saw her, I was like, oh, is she going to be on this show now and not on Walking Dead? Did they Are they going to kill her? But, but then which, I was which, like, actors, oh. which actors are we not talking about again? Uh, this, was the, this was the blonde girl in The Killing who got her throat slit. In the oh, Lance's girlfriend. Yes. Ooh, she died. <laughs> so she's gonna go back and to walk. Ma- man, Ryan just kept losing people. Like we need him alive. <laughs> yeah. Every- that... Everybody dies. Like. Yeah. Exactly. At some Come point, on. I just want to see Ryan be like, "Oh, for the love of God, stop <laughs> dying on me, you people." <laughs> Yeah, somebody's got to be like, come on, can we get a shoulder shot one of these times? They're like, why does it have to be in the chest or the stomach or the heart? Just just shoot her in the leg or something. We need time. Well, especially this guy, he only had a knife. It wasn't like he was going to be able to, if you shoot him in the leg, he's going to be able to pull the trigger and and shoot 
like five guys. No, shoot him in the leg. He's got a knife. Go over and arrest him, and then yeah. repair his leg. You know, it it was just stupid. Yeah, but uh, well, ha- ha- well, that wouldn't be the that's the that would not be the first time we see some stupidity <laughs> from the cops or the FBI or the CIA on this show. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that's our discussion for this week's episode of the following. Thanks, Andy, for rejoining me this week. I oh, hope no. you all will join us again next week for the episode freedom now i'm going to pass it back to dan and we're going to talk about castle yes we're going to talk about the castle good title the greater good castle and beckett investigate the murder of a wall street trader but the case takes a shocking turn when they discover the victim was an undercover informant for the u.s attorney's office to complicate matters further the u.s attorney involved is elizabeth weston captain gates estranged sister this week's castle featured the writer's take on a wolf of wall street with actor kevin kleiner who i think we've all seen in a bunch of tv shows and movies giving a great performance as the quote-unquote wolf suspect or high-powered stockbroker. although i wish we got to see more of this guest character in this episode because he made a strong adversary to Castle of Beckett with his knowledge of how to sell around the legal system. Nico, did you enjoy Kevin Kleiner's performance as Castle's Wolf on Wall Street? Should we have seen more of him in this episode, trying to stay a step ahead of the law? You know, Dan, I did enjoy him as the sleazy Wall Street guy, but because I thought we needed more of a focus on him, I was disappointed with his appearance. So essentially, I thought we needed more of a focus on him and a chance to see him be that great adversary to Castle and Beckett that you called him. But since we did not get that, or at least didn't get enough of that, and the episode needed to focus on so many other good things, I ended up being greatly disappointed with Kleiner's appearance. Not through any fault of his, it just was a lack of focus, I think. As I said, it wasn't because of anything he did, but rather just the opposite. It was because it had so much potential that the lack of focus on him left me disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I was. I was very happy with how he did it, but I thought he was great, but it was like, why not use more of it? Agreed. Yeah. Again, kind of know if they got carried away with trying to make us like Captain Gates and stuff, or what the deal was. But could you advertise it being kind of Castle of Beckett versus the Wolf on Wall Street? That's what it should have been, in my opinion. And really, I mean, I felt that time that should have been used on the character was spent on giving unnecessary character development to Captain Gates. By bringing in her sister, got their falling out over trying to accomplish the greater good. Now, I appreciated the casting of Gates' sister, because I liked this actress from the sci-fi channel Eureka, but it really wasn't enough to make me a fan of a Gates-focused storyline, because I'm not a fan of the character. So I'm really not going to be a fan of the storyline surrounding Gates. In addition, there were parts of it that kind of portrayed it in a silly fashion, like Gates pulling that photograph she had with her sister as kid, kind of her desk drawer. I mean, why would she have an empty drawer with just one picture inside of it? In my opinion, this one kind of really rookie red scene. Nico, were you a fan of this case or life? Could anything have done it down to make it better? Dan, I actually like the writer's attempt to bring some depth to a character that we have not liked since her introduction a few seasons ago. Essentially, I think we needed this episode much earlier in her time on the show so that we maybe could have made a connection with the character much earlier. Unfortunately, I did not think that it was successful here because of our apprehension with the character. Also, for a mildly successful episode, the scenes you mentioned with her looking at the picture of them as kids was pathetic and felt like the writers were trying to yeah. manipulate our feelings and make us feel something for these characters. I, it just did not work. But overall, I think I was a bigger fan of this attempt than maybe you were. I, it just, yeah. I agree that there were some, some scenes like this one that were just not working, not working at all. 
Also, I enjoyed seeing Sally Richardson, or better known as Allie Blake from Eureka, right. as Gates' sister. I, I think you mentioned that as well, that you enjoyed the actress and, and right. thought it was a good person to bring on. I liked the actress, and I thought she was good here, despite us not being huge fans of a Gates-centric story arc. So yeah. I think she made this better than it would have been with maybe another actress, but even even so, she wasn't able to really save it. Well, these combinations of like those bad scenes we talked about, kind of the focus not being on the wolf, the Wall Street character like I thought it should, kind of sucked me out of this storyline. Okay. You know, it was just a combination of the disappointment. Got cheesiness. That I'm like, okay, I can't fuck it. It's not going to work for me. So I guess I was the, the merciless critic this week, and you were the nice guy. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you played good cop, bad cop. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, guys, for the mystery this week, I got a little nervous. Then we're going to go with the obvious suspect of the wolf being the killer. But going with the U.S. attorney who worked with Kate's sister was really a solid twist that solved the argument in a nice, clean way, where we don't have to antagonize Rick anymore. At the same time, even though I said the wolf made a solid adversary to Castle Beck, making him the killer would have made it pointless to figure out the background of behind victim. But again, the twist it turns that when he discovered the Wall Street was killed over me, afraid for a crime he did not commit, was nowhere near as memorable as last week's mystery involving the or various themes throughout the arc of this series. Uh, Nico, what did you think of this mystery? Did you find it memorable? Memorable? No. But enjoyable? Yeah, for sure. I enjoyed the twist that the guy was killed because he was going to expose the planting of drugs on him that forced him to work with the U.S. Attorney's Office. I actually enjoyed the mystery pretty much. Sure, last week was more fun with the ninjas, but this was a fairly interesting mystery this week. If only they hadn't had the gate-centric story arc, I think this would have been a much better episode. Alright, go well, finally with Becca and Council's role in this episode. They mainly went through the procedure of solving the mystery, making quips about the evidence they discovered, and Gates' arguments about her uh, sister along the way. However, along with using the regular tank at the office, the writers gave the show's lead couple a side story about making an in- a wedding invite. And yes, this might have been what Nico calls cutesy, but at least it got Martha in the episode and functioned as a nice way to break up painfully treasure Gates' storyline. Nico was the wedding invite list, just another unlikely story added on this episode in your book or did it help break up the agony of having to sit through Captain, Captain Gates' argument? Well, Dan, it wasn't unlikable but at the same time it was not necessary either. It did work to add some levity while the sisters were having their issues early in the episode and gave a really cutesy but heartwarming closing but I didn't really need it. The arc did not in any way hurt the episode but it didn't help in my opinion either so it was kind of just there for me. Cool, it's something that I guess to give something throughout the episode. Sure, absolutely. And you're right, bringing Martha in was an added bonus of this. And, you know, it was kind of funny that she had her own list of people that had to be at the wedding. So, yeah, like I said, it it didn't hurt the episode at all, but it didn't really help it either. Right. Okay. Kind of made Martha's role a little pointless. I know she's a little more necessary. Yeah. But, yeah, that's what they decided. Well, things are going very well for Castle at the moment, so he doesn't need to come home to Martha to complain or have her help him or give him, you know, some sort of clearer picture or a clearer understanding of what's going on like that was her role for so long on the show and we loved it about her so like they're they are seeming to need to manufacture some reasons for her to be around sometimes and this just felt like one of those manufactured reasons yeah and i mean i could see as the wedding comes closer her giving advice to castle before he gets married agreed kind of thing i think she might be needed to kind of give them direction when stuff with bracken starts really taking off yeah i think you that's know, where that's going to go down with the wedding i actually almost see her more likely to be giving advice to beckett because beckett doesn't have 
have a mom to go to, so Martha would be that substitute mother. And I would like that. That's good stuff. Yeah, especially since they established that, you know, Martha and her father did not get along when they first met, but then by the end of it were really quite friendly. And it seems that that has continued, or at least they seem to be implying that it hasn't continued. So it'd be nice to see the two of them get together and, and like, be that force of uh, recommendation for each. And it might be fun to see Beckett's dad and Castle have a couple moments together and Martha and Beckett have a couple moments together and sort of have that pairing off sort of idea. That would be fun. I'd say that's in the cards for a future episode. Oh, absolutely. Something they should keep in mind, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to intelligence now. With an episode that was a big turnaround for the show, but I think it might have been a turnaround just a little bit too late. So let's talk about the intelligence episode, which was a very good part one in a two-part story titled The Event Horizon. When Gabriel sees himself as the suspected murderer in his crime scene cyber render, he and Riley must find the mastermind who is framing him. Meanwhile, Lillian is relieved of duty, and Tetsuzu takes charge with a full-scale manhunt for Gabriel and Riley. I'm not really sure what happened with past weeks, but this episode of Intelligence was back on par with the call we've come to expect, and for the most part, have had during 10 episodes of this show. Nico, do you agree that this was a better call of episodes of the ones we've had over the past weeks? Dan, yes and no. The story with Mei Chen and Gabriel going head-to-head in the chip renderings and or the cyber rendings and then having to work together at the end as some third party seems to be targeting them. Yes, absolutely. But as you know, I hate when a show puts a major character in either pseudo-jeopardy or accuses them of a crime. And that was the case this week. And, and this case this week was an atrocious version of this thing that I hate. So I enjoyed where they the episode got to in the end, but really hated the way they got there with the government turning against Gabriel. And again, they made the U.S. government the bad guy for the most part of the episode. The episode was better than the past two were, and I'm happy for that, but I hated the pseudo-Jeopardy they used in this episode. Really, it just, I hate that. I hate that technique, and every every procedural yeah. does it, and everyone pisses me off. <laughs> well, this is the thing that you were notorious for on 24, where the government politics would make a character go rogue. Yeah. Or an entire team of characters go rogue. You know I watch NCIS, and I enjoy yeah. it, but I... They have three or four times now put Tony in pseudo jeopardy. Right. And every time I have just railed against it and just thought it was some of the worst episodes of that series. And that's a series that averages 20 to yeah. 25 million people watching. So it's obviously a good series, but I just hate that technique so much. Well, they were probably looking at NCIS because where they came up with this from. Yeah. Now, I understand that they needed to get needed to use that to get to where we got to. And I can accept that to an extent. But the fact that they turned against him and made the U.S. government essentially the bad guy again, just right. it, it's it's something that has annoyed me about this series from the very beginning, that the bad guy tends to be our own government. And I don't know if that's the focus of this series, if, if that's some political agenda of the right or the showrunner, I hope not, because that that's not something I can get behind. I'm hoping it's, it's more of their trying to convey the government has a lack of knowledge about technology, which it does have to a certain extent. Yeah, look at the whole net neutrality argument right. in Congress, and you'll realize that Congress has no freaking idea about anything that has been invented in the last 20 years. They're technological noobs, but... Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like they're trying to capture the realism of that. Okay. It's just coming off wrong. Okay. And really, 
for my opinion, what I thought made the episode strong was not necessarily the moment that stunned. Right. The camaraderie between Gabriel and Ryan like, was much better in this episode. I mean, it's been good since day one, but I thought they kind of lost it over the past. Because this was much better. Agreed. Um, I also thought they did a good job of improving Lillian's relationship with her. Okay, making him more of a mentor this time than an adversary. Because that was the one episode that really burned me about the government being the bad guy. Sure. It made her father the bad guy on top of that. Yep. Okay, this time around, it didn't seem that way. Even though I have a theory that that might not be the case. I hope it doesn't okay. go there. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I was writing this and I went, uh-oh, it might, that could change. Okay, this episode, if he doesn't, I liked it because it's not the adversary. I hope it stays that way. And then, you know, I thought the investigation of how Gabriel proved his innocence was interesting and kind of fun. with the reflection and stuff like that. Because I thought it gave Casper something that felt like the government trying to get them. But the investigation was kind of And I wish they would have rather done with somebody else being at the crime scene and not Gabriel. Or a digital image of game. Sure. But then I guess how can you get made chat in the story? So, I don't know. But, I mean, were some of these things stronger, at least in your mind, Nico? Yeah, I, I, I do think so, Dan. As I okay. mentioned in my complaint earlier, I thought the Mei Chen part of the story was excellent. And that all started with the really cool investigation of the murders by Gabriel and led to the great support from the supporting characters. So all of that stuff that we got to was excellent. Absolutely. Some of the best stuff we've seen for a long time in this series. It's just, as I mentioned before, I thought when the director of National Intelligence and Lance Riddick's director of the CIA character took over and just assumed Gabriel was guilty, it was horrible storytelling and just plain crap. I, I right. did not enjoy it at all. But that crap did allow for some great work from the doctors Cassidy, Agent Jameson, and Lillian working together to clear Gabriel. I thought all of that was a lot of fun to see. So if they could have handled the accusations of Gabriel differently or better, yeah. then this could have been a great episode. Just absolutely great episode. I thought because of the way they handled it, it made it just better than average episode with a lot of parts I hated. Well, I think there should have been more friction between the director and Lance Riddick's character. Yeah, I think that the director or the director of national intelligence and the director of the CIA should have been battling and arguing over his guilt. And Lance Riddick's character should have been pushing to try and take over. And even if he did eventually take over the clockwork right. program, it would have been sort of a little bit because the director of national intelligence had to acquiesce. He didn't just come right. in and they were both ganging up against Gabriel. And it was like, okay, you're going to take over and you're going to run the thing but gabriel's gonna be allowed to go right. out and, and do try and clear his name he is innocent until proven guilty that should have been the, the way they handled it i think they just wanted to be able to have gabriel go rogue with riley and see where that goes for an episode or two yeah. and and then meet up with may chen which is all gonna be good stuff i think it's gonna be really interesting next week yeah. when we see that but the i think getting get, there was rough yeah exactly it was it was really rough and really tough to watch yeah, that really... The May Chen thing, if they play it up more and go with it more, I think it could be really good for this show. A really fascinating thing. Uh, because I really thought with that scene where they were sharing the cyber rendering, it, how it kind of formed this romantic adversary relationship between May and Chen and Gabriel was very similar to kind of what went on with Leonardo DiCaprio's character, kind of his wife in Inception. I mean, don't get me wrong, Inception is kind of one of my favorite movies. Kind of, I think kind of this dream world stuff being translated to cyber world is cool. But on the other hand with that, I a sci-fi fan, so I'm excited about it. I can roll with Is that going to be something that CBS and regular audience could follow? I mean, if Intelligent gets because he's a 2D go. I really don't think it's too much for a TV show audience, Dan, at all. I okay. I don't really think it's too much. I think that most people are able to follow that and be on board with it and be okay with it because 
we are talking about a near future sort of science fiction show here. It, this is right. It's supposed to be present day, but it's a near future sort of idea. But I, I, I don't really agree that they set up an adversarial romantic relationship because I saw it as only one way. I think Mei Chen is obsessed with Gabriel for right. sure, but I think he was just occupying her so that Riley could capture her. Now, Mei Chen said that nobody can act that well. Right. And maybe, maybe you're right about that, but yeah. I didn't see it that way. I think they may actually develop an actual friendship going forward after what happens in the coming yeah. week and being hunted by an unknown third party. But I don't really see a romantic relationship happening. I think most people are shipping Gabriel and Riley. Right. But I don't really see it being that inception relationship between Mei Chen and Gabriel. I, I can see why there's definitely the possibility there, but I'm I'm hoping it doesn't go that route. Well, that's why Mickey word there was similar. Yeah. Exactly the same. No, I understand. But it's it's kind of that idea that he's got somebody haunting his dreams almost kind of deal. Get more of a cyber tech way. Sure. That that you know, dream world. Again, you can't use dreams because that's like stealing from the movie. <laughs> right. But you no, know I, I definitely think there's gonna be a friendship or or at least a, a mutual respect developed in the next episode. Right. So I don't think there's going to be that right. adversarial relationship anymore. I think that in this episode and the previous one, there was sort of that she was trying to invade his cyber right. renders and, and get into his chip and be able to con- communicate directly with him. And in that sense, I do see the connection that you made. But I don't think it's going to be the same going forward. If there is a forward. Yeah, exactly. What, right. Next week's finale maybe series and not season. Yeah, so I don't know. Fine. You know, this episode, of course, ended with a cut to be continued. Thankfully, there's a finale next week because it would have been really crazy if the show was canceled on like this. That would be terrible. I'm going to make the statement that made Chen's statements about being hired by the government that be Gabriel's ally is total BS because I think she either hired the sniper got fired at Gabriel uh, when he went to the evil or the sniper was hired by the same person who hired Mike who hired Chad, trick Gabriel into going out again I'm not sure how this is going to play out but the bottom line is intelligence did their job with this cliffhanger by making me excited for and speculating about next week because they were beginning to lose me uh, with QT plotline because did the cliffhanger work and get you excited for next week what's your thoughts on my prediction if the CIA director is behind could it be Lillian's dad because there's still that door open for him to have you right. don't like it yeah Dan this cliffhanger was perfect and exactly what this show needed to crawl out of the crap fest they've been suffering through the last few weeks. This two or more parter, depending on if it gets picked up for next season, may be exactly what this show needs going into the final decisions on renewal or not, though it may be too late for that sort of thing. This should have been episode six. <laughs> Maybe, right? <laughs> anyway, as for your theories, Lillian's dad seems far-fetched, but at the same time, just about a crazy enough thing to be interesting. I could also easily see it as the CIA director trying to consolidate his power and gain access over the most powerful tool in the U.S. inventory and maybe getting Lillian booted, he could use Gabriel as part of the CIA, giving him the most powerful organization and most power besides the president. We have been meant to dislike Lance Riddick's character since his introduction, so I could see them going that route, but more than likely he is the red herring. Which once again makes me think Leland slash Lillian's dad could be the twist reveal behind the frame job. 
job. I'm not sure what he gains by doing it since he's already the special advisor to the president, but maybe he wants to be back in the game as head of either Cybercom or the CIA again. That could be his position. Or he could have just gone completely rogue and is the head of some organization that is extra governmental. The third option so is we don't that... Know what happened to mother. Right. That, yeah. that, that has never been talked about. So yeah, yes. it's interesting. The third option is that is some unknown faction that pretended to be or is part of the U.S. government. Maybe they are linked to that general that Gabriel and Riley took down and the organizations he was working with developing biological weapons. I actually hope that it turns out to be some multinational corporation with military and government contacts rather than the actual U.S. government being the bad guy once again. That would be great and makes more sense that they would hire Mei Chen to do their dirty work. Finally, I don't think Mei Chen was lying to Gabriel. I think she told him the truth as she knows it and the people that hire her make it made it appear that they were part of the government. I don't think she is lying to him to get him to go rogue. I think he is going rogue because the group behind the attack is making it seem like the CIA director and his control of Cybercom are after Gabriel and trying to kill him. But I'm hoping that Gabriel and Riley figure out what is going on pretty quick next episode and don't go all crazy and thinking Lily and betrayed them or something stupid like that, which will ruin all the goodwill this episode scored with. Anyway, I guess we'll just have to wait and see with the second half of this two-parter in the series, potentially series finale next week, but hopefully only season finale. Yeah, we'll see about that one. Like, I have a lot of theories that are out there that it could go any of these which ways. I, I'd i be interested to see if it is that third party, non-governmental agent, you know, multinational corporation that's just like LexCorp or something, you know. That would go over much better. Oh, absolutely. I, I think people would feel much more comfortable about this show. Right. If they, if, if intelligence comes up with its own decima, yes. you know, from person of interest, it would be a lot better than if it's some faction within the U.S. government. Right. I just don't like that. But I think they could have explained all this stuff so much faster instead of wait, running running around kind of wasting time with some hacker kid kind of getting him off the street. You know? Right. Can I just look back at some of these episodes and I just go, that was such a colossal waste of time. You should have evolved some of these plot threads that you had going so much sooner. But that's just me. Because I feel like by episode four you had all the pieces of episode established. But we'll just see what happens next week. Come if CBS makes an announcement. Um, it may not be till May that we hear about the Trinity show. But we'll see. So now let's move on to talking about a show that's for sure been renewed next season. Supernatural, the episode Mother's Little Helper. Dean struggles with the after effects of the mark of Cain. Meanwhile, Sam hears about a case where straight-laced people are turning into violent murderers. Sam suspects possession and suggests to Dean that they investigate, but Dean tells him to go without him. While interviewing the local townsfolk, Sam meets an elderly woman named Julia who tells him the Men of Letters came to town in 1958. Josie tells Sam the story of a young man named Henry Winchester and his female companion Josie Sands. While Sam is away, Crowley tests Dean. This episode of Supernatural, once again, took a different approach, got to hunting this week, with Sam going off to solve a case on his own, while Dean dealt with personal issue over using the Mark of Cain for the first time. Nico, it's not something that I think either of us want to see every week, but did seeing one brother solve case, while the other one dealt with something completely different, work for you? Work for you? Yeah, Dan, it did. I really yeah. liked this approach this week and felt it was exactly what we needed, especially since they don't seem to be dealing with the Sam and Dean not being brothers slash family issue at the moment. The idea them going and doing their own thing this week was interesting. I agree that we don't want to see this every week because what makes Supernatural so great is the Sam and Dean relationship, but for an every once in a while sort of thing, I'm all for this, Dan. Yeah, and in season nine, you gotta do this. Yeah. Every once in a while, it's gonna get bored into you about that. 
So that was good, and I, and I think we're to the point now that it's not so much the stupid family issue. It was more Sadie being affected by the Mark of Kafers in this episode, White Gold. And right. that makes more sense. Yeah, I agree, definitely. Okay, one of the things that pleased me the most about the episode was how we got the mentor figure or character for the Mother of Wonders thing I was hoping for last week to push the Winchester in the right direction. Again, I wasn't expecting this character to take the form of a nice elderly woman who was formerly a nun, but I bought into her connection with Sam, especially since he gave us flashbacks of his grandfather could showed Sam's optimism inside of Henry. Anika, did you like to use the elderly woman? Could how her story allowed us to see Henry Winchester again? Could, did you feel sorry for the elderly woman as I did? I really enjoyed the flashbacks to the time of Henry Winchester and loved that we that what we knew as Abaddon was actually Henry's partner who sacrificed herself to save Henry and be possessed by Abaddon. The idea that she was originally a human that loved Henry was a great piece of information that we learned this week and I really enjoyed that. The entire flashback sequence was so good this week. It, it really was. It was It was a lot of fun. So yeah, I enjoyed the use of the former nun telling Sam the story of the last time the Men of Letters came to their sleepy little town as a way of seeing Henry again. It was, it was great. Now, I did feel sorry for her in a way. She was yeah. probably going to be a great nun until she saw the evil that was in the world and did not know how to process it and eventually left being a nun. She also felt like she failed by not speaking up about Abaddon taking over Josie, so I did feel bad that like for her entire life she felt like a failure. But she got that chance for redemption. Exactly. And that was what made it a great story. Yeah, it was very, very satisfying. Just great stuff. I, I wouldn't have thought to do a character like this. So that's what impressed me. You know, I would have had it been a former Men of Waters, that kind of thing. Uh, I would have not thought of a, a you know an old lady who was gave up on being a nun because of what she said. That just was really great stuff. And would you say that I felt uh, the Josie character, letting uh, Abaddon possess her, felt very uh, kind of dark side Sith-like to me with Star Wars and the Jedi and kind of having attachments from her. So I liked it from that aspect. Too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. I didn't think about it that way. That's that's great, Dan. Good Star Wars, man. Come on, you got to apply it to everything, right? You're right. I love it. I love it. And every time Supernatural does an episode that gives us a view of the past, we kind of get some big revelation that changes our perception of the overstarking storyline. At this time, the writers came through again when it was real that Abaddon basically got herself in the position to destroy the Metal Runners through Henry's companion, Josie, allowing the demon to possess her as an attempt to protect the Winchester. Nico, what's your thoughts on the revelation? Okay, kind of how does it change your perception of the conflict between Winchesters and Abaddon? I mean, I know you like the idea, but does it change how you view that in any way? I love this revelation about Abaddon and Josie and how Josie was going to be the first woman of letters or first woman in the men of letters. I thought her sacrificing herself to save Henry was also a great piece of information that we learned as I mentioned before, especially since Abaddon later turned that and tried to kill him. It was an interesting twist on our understanding of that battle that we saw the first time we learned of Henry Winchester. I really liked it. As for the conflict between the, tw- the Winchesters and Abaddon, I think it gives greater meaning to us, the viewers, but I'm not sure how much much of that that Sam actually knows and how much he will relay to Dean. If they do know, then I think it will give them an even greater reason to hate her and want to kill her. But since they already had a pretty personal reason for wanting to get rid of her, I don't think it will increase their frantic search to find her, but maybe it will. So, I mean, it's great for us as the viewers to draw us into that conflict even more. But as for their actual motivation, I'm not sure it really changes it at all. Well, I think it was to give us a reminder of why this 
this character needs to be stopped. Sure. Okay, why she should be hated? Because that episode was so long ago when we first met uh, Henry Winchester. Right. So I think that's just emphasized that point. Because we thought Abaddon was going to be a one-shot villain at that point. Right, exactly. So there you go. That's just kind of the reason. And I have a feeling things will happen down the road to make us want to take her down more. I don't know if it's going to be a character death, you know, something like that. This show really does a good job of playing up his villains, um, just causing their demise sometimes to be this. Right, right. But Jeremy Carver hasn't really gotten the opportunity to do a major villain death yet. Because everything he set up last year kind of more left it open-ended for villains to defeat rather than to destroy at that point. Okay. Where this season, I have a feeling Metatron or Abaddon or somebody's going down. I just think that makes the most sense. But anyway, switching gears on the Winchester scene. I've got to say I've worked on a storyline with Crowley's son of Indra, the eldest brother, because of how it keeps me guessing. I mean, for the longest time, I've wanted Dean to accept his role as a mentor of other authors. But with Crowley staging the events to make Dean think that way, I'm worried it's going to fit into some evil scheme. Now, the crazy part to that is, I won't be Crowley is actually helping Dean see his true purpose for good reasons. Because I just love this character too much now for the demon to get a villain's ending. Nico, are you beginning to feel this way about Crowley as well? And where is intentions behind him for good or evil? Dan, I think Crowley is still evil. And I think his plans for Dean are self-serving and will ultimately be evil because of that. I say mm-hmm. this because even though Crowley is suffering from the feels and getting all weepy when he watches rom-coms, he still is a demon and willing to kill, lie, deceive, and just plain screw with people for the fun of it. I think he has plans to use Dean to win him back hell, but I don't think he has any plans to help Dean in a positive way. At least not that's not his major intention. Right. He, he may have a soft spot for the Winchesters now and not want to kill them or harm them unless he has to do so, but he still has his evil plans that need to work out and can't let the Winchesters get in the way of those plans. So if it comes down to it, he will ultimately kill them if he needs to. But I think he's just manipulating Dean to ultimately go after Abaddon and win. And the whole scene in the bar was just to get Dean back on the horse and cheer him up enough that he can go after Abaddon and, and renew his vigor in, in that search. So it's kind of like the idea that they established with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where Spike kind of became an ally to the group, but they realized that once a vampire, he'd always be a vampire, unless he removed his soul. So this is kind of like, I mean, unless he got, get, gave himself a soul. Right. So this is kind of like, once a demon, always a demon kind of deal. Really. Pretty much. Okay. Which makes sense. I think this show's kind of established that throughout the series, where there's no way you can really escape that idea of being a demon. So, so you, you're saying kind of, you don't think the demon blood could help him escape? I I think if they had completed I mean, the blood, I, I think yeah. if they had completed the the actual ritual and given him his soul back or restored his soul then yes he could have been saved and would have been saved. Okay. But because it's it's only half finished and he is only he is part he has partial soul or partial connection to his soul. Right. He can feel and he can he can feel like a demon can't normally. Right. But I think he's still a demon at heart until that is completed and he has restored his entire soul, which may be the ultimate ending for Kraut. And maybe if if he wants that, that will be his redemptive way of not having a villain's end. But at the moment he is still a villain and he is still evil so i think that that's a possibility but he has to win hell before that or has to at least try to win hell before that okay yeah and and right now it just makes it more complicated exactly all right well good ending our discussion on the supernatural episode let's talk about the discovery that abaddon gets collecting human souls to create a demon army in my opinion this is a great way to take a crappy concept with sam in season six could turn it into something that could reignite the man of letters while setting up an epic sized series finale 
Valley at the end of next year. Nico, what did you think about this new concept with the human souls? Dan, I think it's one of the most interesting large concept ideas the show has had in a long time and could be up there with the best of the best in this series. I love this idea that if Abaddon cannot convince enough demons to join her, she's just going to make new ones by stealing and corrupting people's souls. It's brilliant. This is the big bad sort of scheme that I thought the Leviathan were going to pull off last year and never did. So this concept has huge potential that I really hope they're able to capitalize on. Yeah. It could be really, really cool. Well, it's like the, the Winchester's versus the Demon Army. Yeah. That's big time stuff. Huge. And it's gonna, it has the potential of really sending this series off in the right. huge fashion that we all hope. Well, I mean, a big, like, a cultured demon war would be pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And if that's the theory or the main theme behind next season's uh, final season, which I think we're both thinking it needs to be the yeah. final season to really go out on top, that would, in my mind, send this show out on top. Yeah. I agree. I think it would be awesome. Yeah. I'd really break the bank on it, too. Yeah, go for broke, man. Yeah. Well, this show deserves it, I think. It's been a quality show for 10 years. I mean, it had a bump in the road, but... <laughs> it had a Sarah, Sarah Gamble-sized bump in the road, but yeah. But I, I think it did as good as Older Brother, Gus Smallville. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Okay, let's now move on to a show that, well, it's on fire. Can we just say that? It has been since day one. And it really? just keeps getting better. So let's talk now about the Perfect of Interest episode, Allegiance. <laughs> Finch and Reese must delve into the murky waters of international politics when they are given the number of a former government contractor who is stalking a UN diplomat. Also, an enemy attempts to gain an upper hand en route. This week's episode followed a very procedural or textbook personage, but it still remained a very entertaining piece of Thanks to the action, a number of questions that came from the team figuring out why a former government contractor was stalking a UN diplomat. In addition, I've always been fascinated by things like international law and world news, so I sucked so I was stuck right into this story. Nico, did this episode see it in you as well, even though it followed more of standard than we've had over the past couple of weeks? Dan, as you know, standard procedure never bothers me as long as it's used to tell an interesting story. This week's episode did just that. I also enjoyed the little psych out they pulled with initially making us suspect that the machine had made a mistake and this was actually a relevant number who was going to turn terrorist, but it turned out she was just trying to ensure her true love was not branded a terrorist himself. Also, discovering that Greer was basically behind everything we've been watching in the episode retroactively put a new spin on all of it that I really enjoyed. Really, a good setup for this week's episode. Really, I liked it. Yeah, they did good little hits to raise the stakes on this episode to intrigue us. Yeah, I, I felt like the standard procedure didn't in any way hurt this, and no. it actually helped with the storytelling this week. It, it helped progress it in the right manner. So I was okay with it, for sure. Yeah, it, it kept it moving. Yep. Because sometimes it doesn't always do that, but this was like, okay, we're still moving forward. Yeah. That's the great thing about the show. It never stops. It yeah, keeps moving it, forward. You're absolutely right about that. You're absolutely right. This show, I think, has been so successful thus far, because even when they have to get certain points across to us and have have to do it in a certain way it keeps the, the entire overarching story arc moving forward there's never lulls there really have not been very many if any filler episodes throughout the entire run of this series and that has been to its massive advantage that you know that because they've been able to do that we have never felt like this is stalled out at any point and that that that's hard to say about any 22 episode show nowadays well you'll see promos for 
this show. She's like, oh, well, that doesn't really seem like that big of an episode. Or, oh, that's going to be filler. And then I always tell myself, no, you better watch it. Cause there's going to be something in this that's going to be important to get you excited. Because they always come through on that. They are the masters of weaving in important details into what would oftentimes on another series be a filler episode. They ultimately make it super important. Great. Even to those episodes where Zoe showed up. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm so glad she's gone so far. <laughs> well, unfortunately, she may end up coming back. So I don't know. Call that 100 show that she's on. Just do it. But then again, call the other things. It's actually doing really well in the, the ratings. Surprising. Surprising. Yeah, it had the largest CW premiere of any show in the last seven years, I think they said. Might be four years, but I think it was seven. Damn it. Call me tomorrow for that. So I'm mad. Sorry. Anyhow. Anyhow. I enjoyed the title character side story called with Shaw. Called this episode where we discovered color parents met and called the very same information strengthened her friendship with Fusco. Rarely are the character development stories considered to be cutesy because we call it on this show. They just tend to strengthen our particular enjoyment of a character. Because this side story with Shaw and Fusco was just another perfect example. Nico, did you enjoy this development in Shaw and Fusco's friendship? Do I have a point about the character development on this show also being worthwhile for a majority of the time? Yeah, Dan, that's an excellent point. Yeah, that's an excellent point. This show is so great because the things that are often done poorly or too cutesy on other shows are done so well on this series. They could have screwed this little tidbit about Shaw's past up by trying to make it a bigger thing, but by going small yet poignant, it worked out perfectly. Also, I like that Shaw and Fusco are becoming friendly because we know he has a soft spot for her because she saved his son earlier this season, and I like that he's now looking out for her emotionally because she saved his her she saved his son physically. So it's kind of his way of giving back to her after she did this amazing thing by saving his son. It's kind of funny, but Fusco's like the mother of the team now. <laughs> yeah. Well, because Carter kind of had that yeah. motherly vibe to her. And when she went, when she was killed, he stepped into that role. And I, I like that. <laughs> I like that idea. He, he's just assumed everything Carter done. He's making up for both. Yeah. And I love, I love Fusco now that he is, he's redeemed himself. Oh, yeah. And he's, he's just hilarious. <laughs> I just love how he calls up new Coco Pops. Yeah. My, my mom made a joke that, that when Fusco smiles, it's just creepy looking, you know? <laughs> and so I love I love anytime he smiles now because I, I just think of that. And it, it makes me laugh because I'm like, oh, man, he does look a little creepy. <laughs> that's probably the point. Yeah, yeah. And even though this main plot line did a good job of being entertained, I really think my favorite part was Greer taking the step back on Root and Machine Track. Got the machine counteracting problem by telling her to go get there so she could sniff him out. This was cool, almost like Sherlock Holmes kind of stuff. So I got pretty excited about that. But I was also pleased the main story only connected to what was going on with Rear and Missing Generators because it kept the audience excited about what's to come, the war against Meriton, without making the connection look like a wild coincidence. Nico, were you a fan of how Rear kind of reused this stuff? Did you have any speculation about the conversation they shared? I was a fan of careers inclusion and use in this episode i like when they make the two or more story arcs related but not so overtly that like you said we start to question the coincidence of it all the fact that greer needed generators to run the samaritan project and bribed a businessman to steal his own generators led to the possible death of one of his do-gooder employees that made sense within this world i thought this was a very this was very well done this week now, I also liked that Root got an offer from Greer that was very similar to the one that Collier gave to Shaw last week. And I love how the person of interest ladies are now being targeted for recruitment by the two reigning big bad groups. I think it is because they both have thematic character links to the organizations that have been trying to recruit them. Shaw being able to re- to relate to the government betrayal 
like Vigilance wanted last week, and Root being so connected to the machine, like Greer wants to be with Samaritan. And because, as Greer put it, she understands what's coming. But my question is, do we know what is coming? I think we've discussed in the past few weeks what we suspect is coming, mainly a war between the two machines and the teams that work for or with them. But do we know for sure yet? I'm not I'm not so certain that we do. Re- Root keeps mentioning that a war is coming, but are we, and more importantly, Harold and the person of interest team, ready? So you're saying there's a twist coming? I think so. I think it's... it's They're going to hit us completely out of left field or something. I think so, because we've, we've been speculating that a war is coming, because Root has said a war is coming. But now Greer is implying that maybe it's something different. Maybe it's something more. Maybe something completely out of left field is coming so yeah i'm i'm oh boy i'm on super twist alert <laughs> cool we did think fusco was gonna die and out of that turn out right exactly yeah. exactly every time we assume we know what's gonna happen they they they're like oh yeah that's what you think's gonna happen <laughs> how about this Cool, they get us excited for something and then what they end up doing is like a hundred times better yeah yeah and, and really if it doesn't end up being the war that we were expecting are we gonna be disappointed no because <laughs> it's gonna be like you said times better it's gonna be so much fun ah i can't can't wait for this it's silly to say i can't wait for this season to end but essentially i can't wait for this season to end to see where it went well the crazy thing is elias is still exactly that's the the killer of it i mean i know enrico colatoni's on a new series but uh, i really want him to come back (laughs) well if av acker could do shield and person of interest and Rico do it. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure whatever whatever his contract is, it has a, a person of interest writer. You know, yeah. It has to because he is so good in this show that it would it would it would be a bad career move not to continue. That, you right. know, because people love it and they would get really frustrated with him if he didn't return. Well, it makes what makes me feel good is he was in this scene. We have seen him a couple times. Yes. So that makes me feel good. Yeah. That it's still possible. There, there's so much to explain right now with Rear Edwards that it doesn't make such just. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, but it, it won't be coming. Of course, with HR all the way, what's he doing? You know, that's helped his show tremendously. Yeah, right? I think he's cons- he's quietly consolidating his power, yeah. and eventually it will it'll be needed story wise, and maybe even person of interest going to him for a reluctant team up. Right. All right. So are you ready to bring Andy and Wu in talk about a show that's much less manipulative? <laughs> I don't know if it's always much less manipulative, but yes, I'm I'm ready for to bring them in for this week's episode of Glee. Thank you, Mr. Wright, for a second. Thank you, Mr. Schmidt. My name is Louis Kim, and welcome to the New Direction section, and alongside me is Mr. Andy Babat. And Andy, please tell us the official description of part two of the 100th episode of Glee, which is really 101. New Directions. As the fate of the Glee Club becomes a reality, April and Holly plans a, pl- a plan to save New Directions. Meanwhile, Rachel and Santana attempts to make amends after blow what fight. Uh- I'll say this publicly. I'm sorry that I stumbled over my words, but I'll say this publicly. Andy was absolutely correct when he said last week. This really should have just been like one tour event. Because this episode flowed a lot better. It would have if it would just been one continuous thing rather than two parts. To me, this is my 100th episode. 
And last week was the 100th episode, too. Because last week we got more... Mm. Andy, hold Sorry. on, hold on. Okay. Last, okay. Week, last week we got the, the sad sentiment. This week we got, you know, the happy song goodbye. And really, you can't have glee without those two parts. The somber and then the happy. Alright, I suppose. But I was still much more impressed with this part. Funniest line of the episode. Actually, there's two funniest lines of the episode. One is Sam's um, Russian baby line to Curtin, Curtin Blaine. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and, I, he's, and, been he's been saving it for a long time. And Sue's, Sue's line about the, uh, the, uh, the million mothers, even though they're only a hundred thousand, and quite honestly, they're all up to the, I love, I love that line, I um, yeah, I'll have to censor it in some way because we can't curl this podcast. Hey, hey, whatever, whatever. Um, whatever. Uh, I was quoting, I was quoting. <laughs> well, we will have this. Okay, we will have to send us to Sylvester. Well, here's the thing. I sent us to our microphone. I cried for two reasons. One, because this felt like glee. This felt like the magic that we felt we all fell in love with five years ago. This felt like the glee that I fell in love with personally. And the second reason I cried was because this was like a serious finale for Glee 1.0. And you know what? And you know what? It really should have been a serious finale. The way they wrote it, it's got, it, it, it's like what I said to Andy off microphone about Buffy the Vampire Slayer when, spoiler alert, Buffy died for the <laughs> second time. Spo- spoiler alert. I, 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 I said, I said it, I said it at the beginning, didn't I? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do. And not if my giggly partner can let me finish, it's kind of like the when Buffy died. At Buffy died. Spoiler alert! Happy. Um, in the fifth season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, when she died the second time, I really, I really think they should have just ended the series here. Oh, here's the thing. I don't. I would not have been satisfied to be honest because I don't feel like because I would. I would have wanted some flash forwards. Are we ever satisfied with? Though. Yes, because we, we, we got also, the Beatles. We got the Beatles episodes, which you hated originally. But, uh, moving, but, but moving on, you hated the you hated the concept. Let's be honest. But here's something that I I said to Andy, and we'll get into our favorite musical um, moments in the episode a little later. My problem with Glee, and this has always been Glee's problem ever since like the second or third season, they don't know when to end things. Word. They don't know. Because they do a really good job of ending things and bringing them back. And for those of you that didn't catch my Bubby the Vampire Slayer reference, when when she died for the second time in season five, that would have been an okay ending. And then UPN decided to buy, I don't know, buy the rights, but like purchase or, or pick it up there instead. Yeah, air, air it again for two more seasons. Like, here's, and that, that's my other problem with the, the episode now that I'm thinking about it. This is episode 13 or 14. This was the end of the season. I totally understand ending the season this way. Yeah, but we still have eight episodes. So I guess why Ex- Exactly. Exactly. That is my other huge problem. But I will say, I will say this, that, you know, we're, okay, yes, we're eight episodes away, but this, you know, we, we're not gonna have, 
and I think, speaking of this whole, you know, they don't know when to quit, you know, originally, right, you know, Le- Leah, Corey Monteith, and Chris Colbert, they, they were supposed to leave the show after season three. But, but they didn't, but they didn't do it, and quite honestly. Yeah, R- Ryan Murphy changed his mind, like, he said, he went out in public and said that, oh, we are, they, these three are not gonna be part of season four. Quite, quite honestly, looking at hindsight, maybe, maybe that should have been the best decision. Hindsight, well, hindsight being 2020, it's easy to say this now, but in hindsight, they really should have done it this way. Yeah, but okay, let's look at the, let's talk about the positive things that we like in this episode. Yeah, because, yeah, because we're gonna talk more about season four and season five probably at the end of the season this season. Cause they kinda go together. But go, go, yeah. go on, go on. Uh, my, one of my favorite part was, was Dawn's Avalanche figure because and I and I'm so cheesy when it comes to this, but like that song, like like I like I said to my woo uh, microphone, and I love this song here, and I want that song to be the final song we hear on Glee when this show when the show finally ends. And see, there's my problem again. There's my problem. The more you use that song to end things, the less power it has at the end. I think that when we do, when we we see it in the series, if if that song will be part of it, they're gonna do something really different. They're gonna like, imagine like everyone is spread all over the world. And you will cut to all of them. And then, in a way, it will just be like a gigantic performance. But, uh, I like that song, that, that, I like that performance, and I like that Will finally get to sing part of that song. Yeah, and I'm glad, uh, before I forget, I'm glad that the new New Directions, all four of those kids, at least had one scene of them all together to say goodbye if they don't come back. I'm glad they had at least their one scene together. Yeah, I'm gonna miss those five. It's, uh, it's gonna be sad, but, because, uh, because uh, let, let's be honest, and I'm gonna be very, very professional and very, very, like, as, Professional as I can be, those kids really got shafted, storyline-wise. Yeah, like, how many dialogues did Marley actually get this season? How many, like, writers, I think he's, he's had, like, four lines this season. Writer, writer got, got, got totally massacred storyline-wise. So, so did, so did Jake Puckerman. Good grief. What they did with him, him earlier this season was absolutely ridiculous. At least you, at least Unique and Kitty actually got some the actual good storylines, even if yeah, yeah, the, like the, yeah, the girl, yeah, the girls, they got the girls got some good stuff. Yeah, but but in terms, of, but in terms of where they were the year before to where they are now, I really feel bad for those kids. But in terms of musical performances, I thought Diana Argon and and Mark Sailing did great with their Pink song. Don't stop believing. If they do it in the finale, they need to do it in a totally different way. Because again, if you do it to say goodbye too much. It loses its power to say goodbye. I know, I know, and I think, but I think this time, like, we won't hear that song until the finale, and that's gonna be in 30 episodes from now. It but, could have been 30 episodes from now. But I have to, I have to say this to close up, because we are, we are kinda of running out of time. The last shot of Will looking around the empty choir room, and didn't you feel kinda of creepy that the choir room was kinda of empty throughout the episode? No, because they were gonna make it into a computer room, so, you know, that's well, well, not, well, not, well, not creepy. I mean, like, kind of sad to see it all emptied out like that. Yeah, it, it was so sad. And that's what I started to cry. I was like, I know we've been complaining and, you know, saying, oh, we just want to get rid of this part. But when they were showing that and it was ending, like, that's when I realized that 
This is I don't want this to go. Like yeah. I like I I made a mistake. I have to I have to say I have to say this though, that last shot of the empty choir room and just that the the piano chair, that was probably one of the best things that Brad Falchuk shot for this episode. Brad Falchuk uh-huh. did did a phenomenal job directing and writing this episode. Overall I give it a five out of five. What do you give it, Andy? I I this time I will give it a this week I will actually give this episode a five out of five. I will give the sec the first part a Three out of five. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna list this. Uh, uh, because this episode to me was like one big episode, I'm gonna give it a five out of five. If I'm breaking this up into two episodes, I'll give the first episode a four out of five and the last episode a five out of five. But is Glee coming back next week or is it on another yeah, hiatus? No, no more hiatus. They're gonna go, go, go full on. Yeah, and okay, then, then that bothers me too because like the way you ended it, you don't just pick up the next week, but you know, I'm not, I'm not the network, I'm not the writers, I guess I have no saying that. But we'll see you guys next week for... For a- episode 14. Yes, and it's going to be the best time of our lives. It's because it's going to be the best time of our lives. I'm not a good singer. Yes. Maybe I should, maybe I should be on Glee to get better. Yeah. Will Schuster. No, 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 that was me. Will Schuster. No, well, he's gone. It's gone. It's over. Yes. And Quinn is it, going to be the egg for Flaming Kurt's baby. What are you still doing here? It's over. Go home. Oh. And we'll take it back to Mr. Rapshake and Mr. Smith. Bye, guys. Bye. Alright, now we're going to talk about something that, well, kind of brings a tear to my eye. The end of a show that always seems to make me giggle and laugh and just make my wits Stay night a wonderful place. So now we're going to talk about the finale to a comedy that I just don't think ever could be recreated again. Because that's Psych with the episode The Breakup. Psych you out in the end. Sean, Gus, and Juliet handle one last case in the series finale. I think the Psych series finale being told from the perspective of Talking Head scenes with Sean was a great idea. Because getting inside of the set, I felt was a more intimate, intimate way of saying goodbye to a character who has taken us on such a fun-filled wild ride over the past eight years. Because ultimately, this became an actual part of the story rather than an aesthetic storytelling device. But before we get into that part of the story, I wanted to ask what you thought of these Talking Heads, Nico. Because if you felt it was a more intimate way of saying goodbye to Sean. Dan, absolutely. I think when I first saw him talking to the camera, I got a little nervous that this might be some sort of gimmick or storytelling device that was being used to get everything we needed to get through into the finale. But as the episode went on, I realized that it wasn't being used as a storytelling gimmick. Rather, like most of this series, it was using a technique to progress the story. And it was not only to say goodbye to Gus, but us as fans as well. It was no accident that that Sean looked right at us as if he was talking to us the viewers along with Gus. That was the single smartest move in this finale because it allowed James Roday to say goodbye to each and every one of us psychos. I thought it was great stuff and I loved how just like you felt like he was talking directly to you. Well essentially all of us are Gus. Yeah. We've gone along on this crazy ride with this crazy guy and I think we deserve to say goodbye. Um, get really made it some special and get fit this show's storytelling. They always do something tricky with the storytelling. Yeah. Or camera techniques or whatever. So it was a great nod to that as well. Yeah, and just like Sean and Gus are best friends, Psyche and the viewer are like best friends. And that was exactly what this made it feel like when they were saying goodbye. It was the show saying goodbye to us and saying thank you for being our best friend for the last eight seasons. Right. 
continue to say goodbye. I kind of liked how Brannigan was used as a character that made Psych, as in the detective agency, look obsolete. And if this wasn't a series finale, I would have hated her for doing this with a passion, like when guest, like when Nestor Carbonell got started on the show, in my favorite episode of the series. But here it worked by setting up suspense over Sean and Gus possibly breaking up, while letting us know Lassie and the Resolve are covered if Sean decides to leave out. Nico, did you like how Brannigan was to create the suspense over Sean and Gus actually or possibly breaking you know, I did. I like how her being so good at her job that she made Sean obsolete and thus the psych agency in Santa Barbara obsolete was a great way of dealing with the end of the psych agency and the potential breakup of Sean and Gus. It also softened the blow that they might have to break up anyway, even if Sean was not moving to San Francisco because with Brannigan on the job, they might not be needed anymore. But I also thought this episode did a great job of showing us that despite this serious ending, all the major characters that we loved would do just just fine. Lassie has his family, dream job, and a head detective he really likes and gets the job done. Henry was going to be fine now that he seems to have found a way to teach the next crop of detectives and crime solvers by becoming a professor at the local university. I love the ending they gave McNabb. It was perfect, and I love that Brannigan was fighting for him, and we and we knew he'd turn out great. So, yeah, Brannigan worked in setting all of that up, I thought. Yes, so, yeah, I, I, thought so. So, I thought it was great the way they made it all work. Kind of, kind of love a spinoff show with Henry as a criminology teacher. It could be interesting. I think the real spinoff possibility would be Lassie and Brannigan. Oh my gosh. That would be fun. That show would be insane. It would be. Lassie, Brannigan, and now McNabb. Yeah. Oh, that would be fun. Uh, get Woody. Oh yeah, Woody would have to yeah. show up, continue to show up. Yeah, absolutely. Now, after that initial concern set up by Brannigan, we're going to kind of begin to feel that Steve Franks and I were kind of on the same wavelength regarding what we love about this show. As he referenced my favorite Psych episode, which is the Treasure Hunt episode with Steve Weber from Season 3 by throwing a treasure map in the episode. In addition to that, he referenced all my favorite shows, most notably the ones revolving around Gus looking like one of the Cosby Show. By actually having one of the Cosby Show in the episode. And that was great, along with Billy Zane being this week's killer. An appearance has been a long time coming for him on this show, especially with the number of times Sean has brought the guy up. Nico, what were some of your favorite romance jokes from past in this series? Was there anything you thought they missed or wanted to see? Dan, I love that the car Sean stole that his dad arrested him for that we learned about earlier yes. in the series was actually the driver's ed car from their high school, and they stole it once again. <laughs> I loved Billy Zane as the killer, even if it was obvious from the start that he was going to end up being the killer. The fun they had with him, both with his partnership exactly matching Sean and Gus's, and then the ridiculous chase yes. scenes, oh, it all made for a great final case for Sean and Gus. I too enjoyed the treasure map and revisiting Sean and Gus's goal of finding and plundering a buried treasure. Dion Richmond from The Cosby Show was great in the finale, and he steals his scenes by calling Gus blood. Classic stuff. Yes. Oh, I loved it. Can I, I love only... Gus freaking out they found the dead body. Yeah, that was great. I only wish Sybil Shepard was shown more often yes. as Henry's ex-wife in the series in general, but especially in this finale, I think it was a mistake not to get her to come back. And Jeffrey Tambor as Jill's con artist stepdad yes. would have been a fun repeat, at least in these final few episodes. Or Shatner again. Oh, or Shatner, of course, yeah. We did get Carrie Ulls as as the ridiculously unbelievable Pierre Despero in the season premiere, but I thought maybe one last appearance would have sealed it here, but I understand that he, he could. And well, there were so many more things. The but guest he did stars, make that guest special. That's what I was going to say. The yeah. guest stars always seem to be having as much fun as the regulars when they show up. And I was 
was a little surprised we didn't get more in the finale, but maybe they were there just wasn't room. It would have been fun if we had seen Tony Shalhoub maybe make a guest spot yeah. as Monk, as the guy in the pantry that they were obviously referencing. But I thought it was a great way for the writers and the show to honor their predecessor in their series finale. It was classy, I thought. But it would have been even better if they had Tony Shalhoub show up. It's still a great episode without him. It wasn't didn't anyway detract from it. It just could have made it even better. And I did enjoy as one of my favorite things in the later section when you're going to ask me, I will talk about all the guest uh, yes. videos in the after show. Yeah, Tony Shalhoub showing up was great, especially when they've done commercials where they've interacted each other. Right. So that would have been too outrageous. Plus it's like a cartoon. It's a live action cartoon. So I would have bought it. I also appreciated this episode's throwbacks to psych more serious aspects, such as Henry getting to mention some of this more. Obviously crime solving lessons. We saw him teach Saunders to be a criminologist and Sean feeling the street driver car that led to him coming a psychic victim in the first place. If you think about it, Sean stealing this car and catch a kill. It's a live progression of the show. Got Sean's journey being brought full fruition. Because the last time he stopped by his dad in the student driver car, um, Sean thought could ruin his life. But this time his dad got to be a hero by saving him Billy's aid. Nico, did you get a lot of satisfaction kind of how they wrapped a father-son relationship to Sean and Henry? I did. I loved that final hug when, where Henry told him, I love you, kid. And that is exactly what we needed to see. We needed to know that the, their tumultuous relationship was fully healed and they both were going to be alright. I also loved the Lassie and Sean's Who's My Big Boy hug. That was a great wrap up to their friendship okay. and showed that they are truly, they truly were friends in the end. I know they were rivals and did not get along yeah. in the beginning, but they grew to be friends. And I love that too because it showed that Sean had matured in his relationship with Henry and part of that was how he matured with his relationship with Lassiter. I thought it was really good. Yeah, and I really think it was he, Sean had a lack of kind of respect for the pulse and what that stood for good man that. And I think he is respect for the badge it stood for changed a lot throughout the Yeah. So that was good stuff. Okay, following it up, I mean, we said the talking heads uh, weren't just for the audience, but they were actually a series. Sean recorded to say goodbye, not only Gus, but all of his friends last asked. And I've got to say, my favorite moment out of all of them was going along with what Joe just said, was Sean telling Lassiter that the one thing they agreed on their love for Juliet, got the connection we met, conspiring Lassiter to swore on the DVD just for Sean, told him he wasn't psychic. And for my favorite comedic goodbye, you're probably, be, you're probably expecting me to say Woody, but believe it or not, the great Kurt Fuller, cut up staged by Dobson, the detective Lassiter is always talking about screen, being played by none other than Sean's personal Dale Kilmer. Colin, did I mention that McNabb being made Brannigan's junior detective was a great payoff for his character? Nico, were you satisfied all the, by all the goodbyes Sean gave to each of the characters? And were you expecting Dale Kilmer to show up? The Val Kilmer cameo was the surprise of the finale and was the greatest guest star of the episode, surpassing even Billy Zane. The elusive Dobson was Val Kilmer. Eight years of Lassiter saying hello to Dobson, calling for Dobson, referring to Dobson, and it turns out to be Iceman? Oh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, as I said earlier, I loved the goodbye DVDs because they were a great way for the show to say goodbye to each character, but also to the audience as well. Also, as I said, the wrap-ups of the characters were perfect, and I'm glad we know that each of these characters will be alright in the end. That was a big, important part of the finale, was that we knew these characters that we've loved and absolutely followed for eight years are going to be okay, you know? And that's one of the things that doesn't always happen in a finale. You don't know where everybody's going to go. You don't know what's going to happen. I thought Psych did an excellent job of making us feel like things are going to be okay. 
Yeah, and, and you know, Steve Frakes talked a lot about how he hates series finales. Yeah, I enjoyed the, his little speech in the yeah. after show. Yeah, and he, had, he said he wanted to strike. Uh, I think he did. Yeah. One of the big things I was harping on that I had concerns about was like coming to a close was the series ending without Cusk and Girl. And even though the show didn't quite come through with this request on my end, I was really satisfied that everything, with the way everything went down for Gus, as he played his pharmaceutical job with Bud from the Cosby Show, and got sprayed by Mace to go chasing Armstrong in San Francisco. Frankly, there's no Never going to be another bromance in the history of television similar to what is shared between Sean and Gus. And nothing, not even love interest, really should break it up. What these two guys have kind of entertained us with over the past eight years is special. Meaning that Steve Franks is right with the ending he gave us this time. That we all know in our heart of hearts that Sean and Gus will always be out there. Pop culture is referencing their way through solving crimes with jewels tagging alongside. And hey, you never know. They may be joined by a female Jamaican companion for Gus in future. Nico, do you agree with me that Psych needed to end as a series thus always knowing that Sean and Gus were all about solving mysteries together? Even if it came with Gus, not necessarily good girl? Yes. Simply put, yes. We know that Gus will eventually find his Jamaican companion and we didn't not need to see it in the finale, but knowing that Sean and Gus would always be there together was all I needed in this finale. Also, the proposal to Juliet was perfect, especially at Juliet's response of, I will marry the crap out of you, Sean Spencer. And I loved that the guy stole the ring right in the middle of the proposal. That was... Something that only Psych would do, right? Yeah, it's only Sean Spencer. Also, Sean's whole speech about getting engaged to him and Gus, but mostly him, <laughs> and continually interrupting himself to consult with Gus during the proposal was perfect as well. I absolutely loved it. It was exactly what you would expect from a Sean Spencer proposal to Juliet. Yeah, uh, Gus yeah I loved crying. it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Like I said, everything about that was perfect. I love the sequence where Gus quit his job. <laughs> How many times did you turn around? Twelve. <laughs> but I'm here. Guy did that already tried to hit on the secretary. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty uh Guy really thought he was gonna pull it off. No, I knew it was gonna turn and then out it didn't awful. happen. I was like, Oh I knew it was gonna be awful. Oh jeez. Kind of when he shows up the crime scene, kinda the chief reeks out. Yeah, it was it was pretty good. <laughs> Just good stuff. And uh, speaking of Sean and Gus always being out solving mysteries, his final episode, as we said, ended with a great reference to Monk. And I don't know this issue because I'm a fanatic of all these shows. Um, I'm wondering if that was a little foreshadowing or impossible to love TV between everyone's favorite defect and fake psychotic. Could this be in the cards, USA Nico? And if not, and if not, could you see James Rodet and Bill potentially reprise their roles in future TV? Kind of like what they did with uh, Matt Locke and Columbo. So what do you think on that one, Nico? Uh, you know, I don't actually see a Monk and Psych crossover movie, mainly because if they were planning on doing something like that, they would have had Tony Shalhoub show up in the episode and tease some sort of connection between the two or some sort of preview that implied that they were going to somehow meet up or, or compete against each other for the job, other than just alluding to it. Thus, I don't really see it happening. I think, it, I think this was a perfect way to close out the series and the Sean and Gus stories, and a movie is not needed. I, of course, would love to see one, but I don't think it's in the cards. I think... I think the two guys are going to go on, they're going to do their own things, and I think they're happy with where the series ended. I think okay. if you saw in the after show, they felt like this was a really good ending to the series. So why Steve Franks, yeah, Steve Franks was really happy with it. Dooley Hill and James Roday were really happy with where everything went. You know, I think they're happy and they put, I think they put a pin in the end of this, you know, and really felt like we're done, we've put it away, now we're going to go do our other stuff. Okay, 
rumor has it right now, Steve Franks is in process of creating a new show for USA. Cool. So we will hear from Skyla Feeling. I wouldn't be surprised if it comes as early as next year. So I'm interested to see what he's got up his sleeve. And he mentioned that either at Comic-Con or at Zachary Levi's Nerd HQ panel at last summer's Comic-Con. One of those two places. Right. So we'll see where that's at. And finally, if you are a diehard fan of Psych, watch the Psych After Show if you haven't done so already. Uh, basically, this was a special that aired after the Psych finale, which I'm sure most of you watched. But if you haven't, it was kind of a cross between an Attack of the Show episode, kind of Comic-Con panel, where the cast and Steve Franks got to share some of their favorite catchphrases, moments, and episodes from the last eight seasons of Psych. Again, it's really not worth us going through this special for podcasts, but I did want to use this last one because a chance for both of us to share our favorite catchphrase moments from the series of Psych as a whole. So, Nico, what was your favorite part of Psych? My favorite parts of Psych were the crazy off-the-wall antics of Sean and Gus, like the episode where Gus and Sean destroyed a crime scene or the trip to Europe earlier this season. I also loved all the pop culture references, especially 80s movies, Star Trek and Star Wars, and bad 80s music. I loved the experimental filmmaking episodes like last week's zombie episode and the Awake episode from last season. I loved Woody and is continually getting more and more screen time as the seasons went along. The best part of the Psych After Show was all the guest stars and their video messages. I loved that and it was great. I love this series for too many reasons to mention them all, but this is what I could come up with off the top of my head. I will miss this series wackiness week in and week out. Psych, I'm proud of you. Oh, one last thing. Suck it! And I'd have to say that's my favorite catchphrase show. I was disappointed there was not one in the finale episode, but they made up for it in the Psych After Show. Yeah. So thank you guys. I would say my favorite part of this relationship between Sean and Gus. Great stuff. Gus's freakouts about dead bodies. Always great. Sean's nicknames for Gus. Probably one of my favorite parts of the show. Makes me crack up laughing every time. Anything with Woody. Good stuff. Love the 80s references. Absolutely love them. I pretty much have caught or got all of them because I'm for the 80s and there is a lot of myself that exists within Sean's butts. That's why I've always enjoyed character. And I would have to say Henry and his relationship with Sean because it's very similar to the relationship I have my dad and my friends have my dad and so that's always been fun um, to kind of see my dad in Henry and I pretty much sometimes drive my dad as crazy with my pop culture references kind of babbling as um, Sean drives Henry so that was always easy um, it was my relationship with my dad kind of backed it out on TV again I think we get along much better than Sean and Gus they don't have that kind of animosity they had to check in the earlier scene but it's kind of funny to see a parody so those are my favorite parts of Psych and I just loved how it was basically a live action cartoon so uh, thanks guys for bringing the show to us. Uh, great time watching it, and I'm not going to laugh at the way I left it. It's like probably an idiot show. That's just how classic it So, good stuff. Thanks, guys. And glad we got to cover it on our podcast and talk about it with you, Nico. Yeah. All right. So, you ready to move on to the sitcom section? I am. Beginning with another show that we're sad to see come to a close, and we'll cover the finale for that next. How I Met Your Mother with the episode The End of the Aisle. With only a half hour to go, both Barney and Robin have panic attacks about their upcoming nuptials. Meanwhile, Marsha and Lily rewrite their old wedding vows. That is always with our How I Met Your Mother section. We're going to start things off with the great Woo Kids. Thoughts on this episode. So take it away, Woo. This episode pretty much summed up why I love How I Met Your Mother so much. With the L- Lily and Marshall, the flashback of going back to season two, back to their wedding, and realizing that they 
really didn't keep all their wedding vows to Barney's wedding vows pretty much sounding like Barney to how Robin and the mother met. I thought that was really good. I loved that they bumped into each other and I loved Miliati's interaction with Kobe Smulders. I thought that was one of the funniest things of the episode because, I mean, well, one more thing about that. I love that the, the mother said that her and Robin went to second base. I love that line. And I also love the thing about her being a detective. That was the funniest thing in the episode because really, there really wasn't a lot of funny things in the episode. There was like a couple of funny haha moments, like the reveal of the ring bearer and Barney's like nervousness thing. But really, this episode and the end of the aisle pretty much sums up the the episode proper, I mean, this is the end, this is the last one before the finale, so there, there was a lot of, like, sad vibes to, you know, this, I mean, it was great seeing Barney and Robin go down the aisle in this episode, but overall, I was just, I had tears in my eyes, guys, I'm not gonna lie, and because, like, a lot of this stuff's ending, my favorite scene in the whole episode is Ted's monologue to Robin about what love is, very similar to what Ted said out on out on Robin's stoop when they first had their first date in the pilot, what he was looking for in love. And I like that you see in Radner's eyes that Ted has really moved on from Robin. He was thinking about winning her back maybe at the end of the eighth season or the beginning beginning of the ninth, but he he realizes that he's not that guy anymore. He's grown up a little bit. He's not like the same lovesick guy hoping against hope that something's gonna happen. He's much he's much more of a realist now. I mean, Ted's still more or less Ted, but he's grown up in the last nine years, and I'm glad that the writers like said that about him because. Because he's been through a lot. He's been through, you know, multiple ex-girlfriends. He's been through, you know, Barney and Robin getting together behind his back. He's been through being left at the altar. He's been through losing job after job. That can change a person. And I'm really glad that that over the, these nine years and in this episode that Ted acknowledges that. I'm really, really, really not ready for this show to end, guys. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I'm not ready... I'm probably going to be a blubbering mess next week because I will see this episode live. There's no way I'm not going to see this episode live. I'm probably going to have tears in my eyes through this entire thing. I'm not ready to see it go. That being said, it's been a great night. I mean, 10 years ago, it was my senior year in high school, and we saw friends have their final episode. Now it's 10 years later, and now we're going to see how I met your motherland. I did go to cbs.com slash mother to send my well wishes to the cast and crew. Please do the same, guys, if you're a High Mutual Mother fan. And like I said, I'm not ready for next week, but you know what? It's time has come, and we've got High Mutual Dad next season. I'll see you guys later. Let's take it back to Nico and Dan. See you later. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, as always, for the voice bell. We were great stuff as usual. And as for my thoughts, I know people out there were either anxious, annoyed, or maybe even still shipping a romance between Ted and Robin. But for those of you who are still shipping, it's over. Ted turned down Robin's dance, realizing she's meant to be with Barney. God, it needs to be this way. For the progress Ted made, could his journey over the past night would have been all for now. But for how I met your mother, could be in one of television's great love stories, its main character and its world, needed to understand the most about love. When it's unpredictable. On that note, I thought the writers of the which the show screen 
commentators did a brilliant job of aid mention, not just through the speech Ted gave Robin, but visually as well, through Marshall and Lily rewriting their old wallet, their old wedding vows. When it started out, this storyline with Marshall was something that had me yelling, get back to Ted and Robin already. But then I found it's important, as it made them function as what the show intended them to be. The couple that works, who makes them believe Ted, or anyone for that matter, find love. But they certainly championed this role when reading each other's their vows. Speaking of Marshall, I did not see the final slap coming during the wedding ceremony. In fact, it happened so fast, I didn't even realize the slap was over until Barty said something. But for a way to go out on the slaps, I like how the writers ended it all on what a slap should truly be. Something swift, which comes without warning. Oh, and can I say to Shade of Barty and actually getting a ring bear into the wedding that I would have loved to see Flower Gorilla. But the thought of it is what counts. Now, all that's left for me to do is watch the finale, where I am prepared for part one to be similar to the season two finale episode that showed Marshall and Lily's wedding from the perspective of Ted breaking up with Robin. Me, that's probably going to be impressive, but at least we got another half an hour to lift our spirits up, depending on how Nico's theory about the mother passing away goes. But I'm still holding out hope the show is going to give us a happy end card. Nico, what were your thoughts on this How I Met Your Mother episode and the final slap? I was not a fan of this week's episode and was hugely disappointed with Robin's freakout and profession that she that maybe she and Ted should be getting married. That whole idea completely pissed me off and felt like it was just to appease those still on Team Robin and Ted, despite him letting her go a few episodes ago. Luckily, they saved it by Ted refusing and then Barney showing exactly how much he's matured over the course of this series as he vowed to always tell the truth and fessed up about the locket. Anyway, my favorite comedic moments were Marshall's speech to Lily when he he said, you're the love of my life and you deserve to take a deuce in peace. The mother's line about getting to second base with Robin when they ran into each other, the ring bear, yes. and and the Knicks flower gorilla, which I wish we got to see. That would have been fun. The terrible Marshall wedding puns, Marshall's bearded Wonder Woman incident. These were all great moments in an otherwise disappointing episode. Finally, the last thing that was a disappointment about this episode was that final slap from the slap pet. It just seemed like a huge letdown after the amazing ones we got before. Yeah. And that, that's really all I have to say about that. I'm glad they got the Robin thing done, though. So next yeah, week, focus on the mother stuff. I don't think it was necessary. I think we could have done without it. I don't think there was any question in my mind that, you know. She was going to get with Barney. Yeah. yeah uh, why did they have to have this? Yeah, they can have a freak out. She could be thinking about going. But why did she have to have the Ted moment? That just, that took me out. Of it. Well, it should have just been, can she trust Barney? Yeah, exactly. Because I would have bought that. Yeah. Because I thought the Lillian Marshall stuff was fine. Because, again, as I've said for the past couple of weeks, what more can you do with them? Sure. Uh, I'd say next week's episode, it really needs to be almost told from the perspective of the future, kind of. Does that make sense? Being one of those finales that starts out in the future and goes backwards? I, I could see it doing that. I think it just needs to focus on how Ted met the mother. So everything yeah. everything that goes on from the moment they walk out of the church, uh, which I think is where they'll pick back up, okay. to the end scene where they're riding home on the train together. Okay. I think we have to see that and have to see how they end up meeting because the meat is what this is all about you know and we already saw their first date it was a rousing disaster turned success great so we don't need that part of how they got together we need to see how they met and so everything in this finale this hour-long finale it's going to get 42 minutes to get from barney and robin walking out the door to to ted sitting in the rain wait for his train back to but you also may have to explain why he's telling the kids the stories yes 
yes, and I think we will get that is the close up too after they he actually gets to the meeting. Okay. So I think that that's all part of it, and we'll understand all of that. I I, I think they you know they've been writing this episode since the pilot, right. essentially since the pilot. They've been writing this episode, revising it as they made changes throughout the story, as they went extra seasons. They've been revising it, but ultimately, yeah, they've had in their mind since the pilot how this is going to end and if, if they screw it up they screw up the whole series so well, the fact that the 200th episode went so well and that had a great ending i feel confident about this sure God, God, and we also remember uh steve franks did talk about the psych you know which just went off because you didn't endorse like a psych section he said he knew the last 20 minutes but the whatever before that he kind of wasn't really sure how to get there yeah and so i feel like that's the case with this one too now it won't be the case of how i met your mother this episode was the part that they didn't know how to get through and then the 42 minutes we're getting next week they know yeah i hope so too. i absolutely hope so and, and the fact that people have been involved for so long um, i think that's the case but Pamela Fryman, who's directed on every episode of this show, I, I think will be a big person saying, we got to do this right this country. And I have to say, that's an amazing in case I forget it next week, for her to direct every episode, almost every episode of the sitcom. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, that, that doesn't happen in the modern world. And that, that's a feat in itself. She really should get a lot of credit for that. Sure, absolutely. A lot. So with that, I think we'll move on talking about a sitcom that's doing well. I thought everything in this episode came together in great comedic fashion. So let's talk about the modern film, Las Vegas. The adults are Vegas-bound when Jay hooks them up with Excelsior-level hotel accommodations a courtesy of one of his big clients. But after learning there's an even higher level, Jay becomes obsessed with upgrading. Meanwhile, everyone's sneaking around when Claire secretly hits the tables to win back money she lost years ago. Phil goes underground auditioning for a secret society of magicians. Cam ducks out of a spa day with Mitch to join their friend's bachelor party shenanigans. And Gloria is determined to hide a female version of a dog butler Barkley from Jay. My favorite comedic moment for this week's Modern Family was the mass confusion that led to Fern, that led to Fred Armistead ending up in Mitchell and Cam bathtub. The hotel butler thinking Claire was a female dog statue, Jay being visited by Irish strip, and Phil being inducted into the society of magician by accidentally making it look like he transformed the dog statue into Gloria. There were also a whole lot more shenanigans that went into this sequence, but the writers being able to set off such a large number of events to fall down in creative succession like dominoes just amazed me, because I would think it would be very difficult to keep it straight in a way to ensure this struggle with delivery of laughs. I mean, I'm no member of the Academy of Television Art and Sciences, but this had to be an example of Emmy caliber sitcom writing. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family? Dan, once again, our sense of humor is overlapped, as I too enjoyed the mass confusion, fast-paced, everyone ending up in Jay's room scene from the end of the episode. I also enjoyed the Jay gag of there kept being another higher-level, excelsior-level each time he thought he'd reached the top. This might have been the best episode of the season, and I think you are correct, Dan. If I were the writers over at Modern Family, this is the episode I'd submit for Emmy consideration. I didn't realize there were 64 floors. <laughs> God, that would be my dad. That so would be my dad. Yep. At a hotel, I'm thinking he'd get off. Gosh. Oh, good stuff, good stuff. Now let's move on to an episode of New Girl that was oddly hilarious as it normally was. Kind of depressing, because I'm kind of a shipper of a relationship on this show. So let's talk about the New Girl episode, Mars Landing. Hey, girl, what you doing? J. 
Jess and Nick examine their relationship. Meanwhile, Schmidt, Coach, and Winston try to impress their attractive new neighbors, and Cece sends a drunk text. With this week's new girl, I thought Drew American gave it great potential. I thought that whole sequence was hilarious. I did realize he was going to greet as well. Chaos is a bit rated. I thought it would be a, post, a funny post-hangover episode, and it kind of got a little more serious as um, Jess and Nick broke up. Sad face on my part. Did not like that, but it's kind of something that normally happens. Season 3 of these types of shows, so that made sense. And uh, for my favorite comedic moment, I have to say Schmidt coach argument where they were breaking the, the new neighbor's furniture and stuff, and Coach was saying that all the women he dates look the same after Schmidt told him that they looked like gremlins. And that was just kind of funny, random hilariousness that they threw at each other. And I just thought that argument was funny. So random and awkward what they were saying. And, uh, you know, David Wade Jr. told the show for that argument. He cracks me up as coach now. Really found his niche in that role now after his first appearance was a little off. So, Nico, what were your thoughts on this episode of New Girl that was funny but yet depressing? This week's episode started out very promising as the gang partook in their most alcohol-fueled game of True American yet. Indeed, it was probably one of the most entertaining cold opens we've seen this season, especially yes. considering how into the game everybody was. We've seen this game played on a number of occasions, and I still don't quite understand the rules. I think maybe they make them up each time, and every time they play, it's different. But that's okay, because it's a drink game, and that's how they kind of go. What's wrong with being Greek? <laughs> My excitement soon diminished as Nick and Jess spent the entire episode arguing. The idea of a hungover couple having to go to a one-year-old's birthday party sounds like a potential comedy goldmine, but the payoff never came. Instead, we were subjected to an argument that never left the bedroom and ended up with an awkward breakup at the end. Oh yeah, Cece and Buster? Yeah, I'm moving on. (laughs) There were plenty of funny parts in this episode, but the overall story was a downer and left me wanting in the end. That being said, my favorite comedic moments included the true American game, as I mentioned, Nick's idea about the future and Mars landing, the American capital of Mars, Nick getting dressed while hungover and buttoning his sleeve to his chest. How did that happen? (laughs) Nick's firstborn child to be named Reginald Vell Johnson after the actor who played the dad on Family Matters because Nick once made the mistake of betting he could flip a giant pancake and lost that bet to Schmidt. <laughs> when Coach and Schmidt started attempting to go after the one single girl and Winston said, I'm also involved in this. And finally, Schmidt's just a man doing a full downward facing dog in the nude closing tag. So that's what made the breakup awkward to you, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm not a fan that's going to be on again, off again, on again, off again, hooking up, not hooking up sort of thing that we're going to see for the next foreseeable future of this show. Yeah, Yeah. well, I mean... Schmidt, Schmidt naked, and yeah. Jess walking in on it. Hilarious. Yeah. Hilarious. But, uh. It saved us from being completely depressed at the end of that one. Thank you, Schmidt. Yeah. All right, well, let's run on into the rundown section. You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's Pope from Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. We know trauma. We're going to kick off with The Walking Dead and the episode Us. Faith can be the most unyielding survival weapon, despite some survivors believing that brutality is what is needed to stay alive. The Walking Dead Season 4 penultimate episode finally revealed our first glimpse of Terminus, and like Woodbury before it, it appears to be an oasis in an endless desert of death and despair. Appears to be, at least for now. 
In truth, I'm not sure what this sanctuary or the overly cheerful Mary will reveal themselves to be ultimately. Many viewers will likely have speculations, but what this episode has truly exposed is how crucial it is that the show put an emphasis on strengthening the characters in the coming seasons. The truth is, there are only so many times that the writers can lead the viewer to a big WTF episode. The series simply can't sustain itself if the formula is four episodes of setup, one to sort of stall the momentum, and one big explosion. I'm not saying that this has been the formula exactly, I'm simply stressing that a season cannot rest entirely on the strength of its finale. We may learn to appreciate certain story elements once they've been fully paid off, it's true. However, will those who have found the second half of this season lacking suddenly have a change of heart should next week's finale deliver a shocking or otherwise powerful punch? Maybe, but probably not. Rather, the best course of action will be to strengthen the central characters and focus more on character development in those set-up episodes. This can be done through flashbacks of the character before the world went to hell, or even for those we've been with for years to fill in some of the gaps from the past even within the story we've already seen. For instance, we could flash back to the time at the prison before the governor's attack, or to some of the new characters like Bob when they showed his time alone before being found by Daryl and Glenn. That was one of the better ones this season. Going forward in next week's finale and beyond, the focus should be on character development because a manufactured climax will only have minimal bite if we feel detached from these central players. Like it or not, the character-focused interludes that we've seen throughout this season are the meat and potatoes of this show. Sure, some were more successful than others, and of course, the dialogue doesn't always land, the pacing can be uneven and periodically plotting, and there have been some characters that were best left as walker bait over the course of the four-year run. But having said that, we've all signed on for a journey through what is, by all indications, the end of days. I don't know what the conclusion of this series will bring any more than you do. Having said that, isn't it possible or even probable that The Walking Dead is ultimately about humanity's last gasp of breath before this possible extinction event? Could this be a series without a happy ending? Those are some of the questions that The Walking Dead, to varying degrees of success, are delving into as a series. It examines what we value as a culture and a society by highlighting what we do not, and demonstrating how that would shift in these circumstances. We've seen that play out in the contrast between Beth and Daryl's pre- and post-zombie lives, and in this episode, the crazy ringleader Joe contends that the world is finally coming up right, as his fundamental survival skills are now recognized as essential. There have been great successes in last season's development of Daryl and this season's development of Carol from a broken victim to a woman of an unimaginable strength of will. If the show can do that more successfully and frequently with the other main characters, this show will continue to be even more successful going forward. Because who cares what waits at Terminus if we're not invested in the characters that are heading into its clutches? If you care about Glenn and Maggie, then you are likely moved to see them reunited. Though yes, that timing was a little too convenient. Oh, and how about we don't test the fates by burning that picture? Yeah, it was a nice nod to the Terminator, but come on. <laughs> you just know something terrible is going to happen. Ultimately, this week's episode, Us, was designed to infuse the series with a dose of optimism. Perhaps so that the show can slap us in the face with another dose of post-apocalyptic harsh realities in next week's finale. It remains to be seen what possible horrors lurk behind the sunflowers and kind face of Mary at Terminus. Again, not a spoiler, I don't know. However, as we've seen on The Walking Dead, and as Sasha cautioned, if it looks too good to be true, 
It probably is. If this is truly a place of nightmares, then they may have oversold the kumbaya of it all a bit this week. Then again, the show does have a flair for the dramatic. I guess we shall see next week's finale entitled A. Yeah, good episode. Finally, one group made it to Terminus. But we'll see next week if Terminus is exactly what we thought it was. Now we're going to move on to another great episode of Justified as we move up to the penultimate episode, The Toll. Art is badly injured, Deputy Allison, but Ava deals with the aftermath of killing Jupiter. It's been a while since Justified felt as confident and moved with as much purpose as it did in the episode The Toll, an episode that lit the fuse on a three-episode arc that will undoubtedly close out Season 5 with a fiery ball of Kentucky fireworks. And I feel as though it took only one thing to make it happen, putting Raylan and Daryl Crow Jr. on a collision course. Justified has staged so many classic scenes in and around that elevator in the marshal's office, but Raylan confronting Daryl at the end of this episode felt like the most important one of them all, considering that the fate of an entire season may depend on it. These two locking horns for real was long overdue. They've been playing sort of footsie for most of season 5, and now that all of the cards are out on the table, season 5 feels like it just is getting started. Getting to this point required an inciting incident, and Art taking a bullet from a mystery gunman while protecting Allison was one hell of an inciting incident. Unfortunately, the scenes from last week spoiled it for us, but Art got shot, and he's such a badass he didn't even realize he'd been shot. I love Art, but sending the character into critical condition just a few episodes before the season finale, with his retirement and Justified's final season looming, means there's no guarantee that Art will survive. The gravitas of the situation was aptly portrayed by the deputies, with Tim, who was particularly hungry for some old-fashioned Kentucky justice, and seeing all the other departments scramble made it feel that much more brutal. We know Art as Raylan's wisecracking, eye-rolling chaperone, but the man is important. The question of who shot Art became the backbone of this episode, a whodunit with two whos and two questions of why they done it. Daryl Crow as payback for his brother Danny's death, with Allison being the target as a means of getting at Raylan, or Theotonin as revenge for getting shot and locked up by Art, with Art being the target. The details of the investigation aren't that important, but here's a quick summary. Tonin copped to hiring a shooter for Art, but no one really believed him, the theory being that Tonin would rather plant false information and screw with the marshal service from a jail cell than not be a part of this party. That left Daryl as the likely shooter, but even he was quickly dismissed after he turned himself in. And here's the shocker. The confession came from Kendall, who said that he was going to see Allison again, but was so scared of what happened to his brother-slash-uncle, Danny, that he showed up strapped to defend himself. Justified used Danny's death beautifully here. We, of course, along with Raylan, know that Kendall's confession is crap, and he's taking the rap for his uncle Daryl to prove he's a crow, exactly what his uncle forced him to say in the close of last week's episode. And that led us to the conversation outside the elevator. When Raylan pulled Daryl aside and pegged him for making Kendall take one for Team Crow, according to Raylan, it was Daryl who shot Art, after which he forced Kendall to confess because life in juvenile hall is a lot easier for a kid than life in prison for a grown man. And as the credits roll, we still don't know for sure who pulled the trigger, but we knew that Raylan was pissed and that getting Daryl is now his main objective. After several episodes full of minor annoyances between the two, things finally got real, which is something we've all been wanting. Elsewhere, Boyd decided to take up smoking, so to speak, as he 
grew sick of paying for the crow's mistakes. But it was Boyd's secondhand smoke that proved to be the deadliest when he tossed a rigged cigarette box to Picker that blew the man up. It was absolutely ridiculous and ridiculously awesome and was the best death this season in a season of memorable ones, last week's Danny's death included. I always appreciate Boyd for his wit, but sometimes a heaping helping of crazy really does the trick. Boyd's new deal with Wynn, he's handing over half of his half of the heroin and their business will be concluded. Who knows if that's the end of that storyline. It's been kind of rocky one, remember all the stuff in Mexico, but hot damn, Boyd just blew someone up with a cigarette. Back in prison, ugh, prison. Ava was due to pay for Judith's murder, but then she didn't. Instead, she became the new drug kingpin and took over Judith's crew. I stand by what I've been saying ever since Ava went to jail. Get Ava out of jail. This is awful. When is this art going to tie to everything else that's going on? Ava's story aside, there was a lot to be excited for in this episode, The Toll, and now I'm stoked for the finale. The long-awaited showdown between Raylan and Daryl is on. As long as I'm not crazy, we have an idea of how everything is building up to a big decision for Raylan. And Boyd made a dude explode, which is always welcome. But most importantly, Justified finally seems to have a clear direction in mind. The final two episodes have a really good shot at being truly great, and this episode was easily one of Season 5's best episodes yet. So join us next week for the penultimate episode entitled Starvation. All right, another great episode of Justified leading into a great episode of The Americans entitled The Deal. While Philip is busy cleaning up after their last mission, and Elizabeth tries to reassure Mark, the couple are assigned a replacement candler. Got the KGB, RQA, and Oleg disagree, got out of handle things. Got the FBI assigned Stan to find a missing science. I only have time for a short review this week, but this was probably my favorite episode so far of season two. The central storyline with Philip and his Mossad agent prisoner, very well played by Cliff Mark Simon, holed up together was a great one, wonderfully capturing the interplay between two guys in the same complicated line of work and the mind games going on between them as they kind of sort of bonded. Even the prisoner's big escape attempt was capped off by him matter-of-factly saying, sorry, you know I had to try, and Philip probably couldn't argue with that. Elizabeth had a lot to handle herself, from ending her fake relationship with Brad to having to run over to Martha's to stop her from naming Clark as her husband on her application. This was a very good scene, though I did find it a stretch that Martha would so quickly jump into sex stories with her husband's sister. But the scene still worked for how uncomfortable it was, as Elizabeth had to hear about her husband potentially being more passionate with this other woman, and be reminded that at the same time, how invested Martha is in her sham marriage. There's many people getting hurt along the way, or setting themselves up to be hurt on this show, but that's also what makes it so good. How invested everyone, including us, are in these stories and multiple lives they live. In the midst of this, we also got a better look at the game Oleg is playing. And as it seems, he's not just annoying and ambitious and creepy with Nina, but actually a bit crafty. Stan may be saying this Oleg may be cocky enough to lead us right where we want to go, but it seems maybe the opposite is true. The end was also particularly impactful as Anton tearfully begged Philip to not send him back to Russia, the place he'd escaped from. Something Philip could not do, resulting in Anton calling him a monster. We know it's not as, as simple as that, but seeing Anton forced away from his family and the life he'd built, it's understandable why he would think so, and his fate is another scary possible future for the Jennings, should they ever be taken by an enemy and separated from their kids. 
This week's Americans put Philip in another fascinating scenario with a fellow all-by enemy spy, while Elizabeth had to deal face-to-face with the emotional fallout of a husband who has a second wife as part of their job. Another great episode, as I said, probably my favorite so far in this excellent second season. Join us again for next week's episode, Behind the Red Door. And that wraps up our reviews for this week. Now we're going to move into the voicemail section. A call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. We played Wu's voicemail about How I Met Your Mother in that section this week, but we're looking forward to hearing from Wu on the finale next week. Yes, it would be a very good voicemail. We look forward to also hearing from maybe some of our other listeners next week, so we will have some comments to play in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedbacks or even a review of one of the many new TV shows we haven't reviewed yet. Hope to hear from some of you soon. Also, you can make some suggestions for shows that maybe you want us to take a look at can do a watch or not on as well absolutely okay with that i think we're going to move into wrapping up this episode with the closing okay nico you want to tell everybody what's coming down the pipe next week the schedule's going to be a little bit different now because of some things that they get going off and whatnot so uh, take it away with what's going down sure on next week's episode we continue to cover the spring 2014 tv season with in-depth discussions on once upon a time with dan and andy the following with andy and nico the intelligence finale person of interest and revolution and our sitcom section, including the series finale of How I Met Your Mother, an episode of Modern Family, Community, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on the season finale of The Walking Dead, Justified, and an episode of The Americans, and probably a watch it or not of James Vanderbeek's new show, Friends with Better Lives, and maybe even a few more things if we can fit them in. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairways.com. Yes, for sure. Yes, for sure. And also, you can check us out. Got a new home now on the Mix radio station, which is an online radio station available. And I need to add the links to the Mix to our website. But basically, um, in addition to our iTunes feed, our Lipson feed, got our regular RSS feed, you can listen to us on the mix. Yeah, and basically um, you can check out our podcast there weekly on Friday at 6 p.m. in the time slot that was graciously given to us by Jack Stife, the owner of the mix. And our other podcast shows are available on the mix as well at various times. And I'll let Andy and Michael share with you of that information on their respective podcasts. And so you can check us out on the mix and our regular site of this before and the links to the mix are going to be coming on the site soon. So keep an eye out for those. Also, I recently set it up that there is a player now on our main website that will play all of our podcast episodes right off of our website. So if you're having trouble figuring out iTunes or don't use it or are confused with our lips and link, you can basically listen to our podcast episodes right on the website in both ACC got regular MP3 formats. Um, I just figured that would make the things easier for you guys who are confused on how to listen to our episodes. So those are two big things from our sites um, that you can check out and hopefully we'll raise up our listener numbers. 
until our next episode, you can check out our spinoff podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, which is a podcast hosted by Michael, Jay Petty, and Wu Kim. And they basically choose a topic that's going on in the entertainment industry to basically talk about it for an hour to an hour and a half. So you can check that out for a mixed bag of topics about the entertainment industry. Also, we've got Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast, which is briefly out of hiatus right now to kind of be rebooted because more of a DC news source. So we're going to be more so reporting on news coming out of the world of DC entertainment rather than reviewing things. So we're hard at work on that. And also, we've got the Helicarrier podcast, which is hosted by Andy and myself for the current time being. And basically, that covers episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Get more detail. And we'll be covering the next new episode of the show when it returns from hiatus. So if you like Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and watching that show, check out the Helicarrier podcast for in-depth reviews on every episode. And if you're a fan of the hit CW TV series Arrow, you can check out ATA Longwalters, the Arrow podcast, hosted by Michael, Jay Petty, and Wu Kim. And that basically is a podcast that covers episodes of Arrow in greater detail on a weekly basis. And they will be covering episodes of Arrow once the show returns from hiatus, which I think is this week. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us in a variety of ways by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. And there you can email us at acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Again, it's acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. You can also like our site on Facebook where you can follow all of the movie and TV news that Nico reports on during the week, as well as the rest of our podcast members. And also, you can stay updated on our podcast episode releases. And for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter or join our circle on Google+. Also, as we mentioned earlier, you can leave a voicemail sharing your thoughts on any of the shows we cover or suggestions on odd shows you'd like to cover. And what number can you call to do that? 773-809-3363. Yes. So call us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from some different people from week to week. Uh, we love Woo's voicemail. But we'd like to hear from some of the other people out there as well. Also, you can check out our YouTube channel, which has all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming TV show episodes, as well as previews for upcoming movies, including Guardians of the Galaxy, which will soon be posted on our site. And we also have trailers for X-Men Days of Future Past, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and a whole lot more. So if you're excited for summer movies, check out our YouTube channel for all those previews. Also, we have recently set up an app with Stitcher Radio, which is available by visiting our website and clicking any of the links for that. So it's a free app, and we're hoping that that app will be much more successful in helping out ATA compared to the podcast box. Got Android apps, which aren't selling that great right now. So for an easier app to use, got easier access on our phone, you can download our Stitcher app. Also, we still have the podcast box, which will let you stay in contact with our podcast, can listen to our episodes on your iPad or iPhone. Can also, if you're on an Android or Windows device, we have our Android app, which will let you listen to our podcast episodes. Can that is available on the Amazon markets. All right. So once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, can Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reifstead. Can until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airway, where we will sight you out in the air. I'm not inclined to resign to maturity If it's alright
Now return to our regularly scheduled program.